President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Today we bring you part two of Cable Cowboys and American Entrepreneurs. The remaining three industry leaders featured here are all prime examples of individuals who have put it all on the line to build, shape, and grow the cable business. And today, their influence is still strongly felt throughout the world. First up, John Malone, an engineer at Bell Labs and a McKinsey consultant before getting into cable via General Instrument in the early 70s. John Malone joined Bob Magnus at TCI in 1973 as its president and CEO. With the cable industry awash in debt and creditors constantly knocking at TCI's door, Malone stood firm and held them off. As the industry grew, Malone began making investments in several programming entities, including BET, Discovery, AMC, and Turner. TCI was eventually sold in 1999 to AT&T for $55 billion, the largest corporate deal of its time. And now, Cable Cowboys and American Entrepreneurs. But that's, uh, so I want you to take us, take us through some of that. But I, you know, you, you've had an enormous influence on, on the business, both on the operating side and on the programming side, obviously. So mm-hmm. I'd like to at some point here sure. to get into both sure. of those, but, but this development as you met Bob Magnus and then you, mm-hmm. you worked right. forward from that, uh, through those rough early days until <laughs> you saw yeah. some, some light out there. Well, it it know, would be great to hear about sure. that. Sure. Uh, let me take you a couple minutes through my experience at Gerald because, yeah. uh, it was a terrific experience. Uh, a, a bunch of, uh, guys, uh, we pretty much reinvented the equipment business over those couple of years that I was there. Two-way came in, if you remember, the FCC mandated two-way. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and Gerald was the only outfit that could supply any of that kind of equipment during that time frame. So our market share just exploded and our profitability exploded. And at one point there, uh, Gerald was making about twice as much as, as General Instruments was reporting in earnings. <laughs> So we really, there was that burst of enthusiasm in the industry, uh, you know, when the, the FCC had loosened the restrictions and yep. a lot of entrepreneurs believed that now was the time to start building the cable industry. It was a short-lived spurt, but it was, uh, it was quite dramatic when I was there. Anyway, uh, there was a succession problem at, uh, at General Instruments. Uh, Moses Shapiro was, uh, going to retire because of age, and I didn't particularly care for the succession that was going to take place, and thought it better for me to look around. And so it's kind of interesting because I had really three opportunities there to leave Gerald. One was, um, and I was actually voted for a short period of time to be the CEO of Teleprompter. Tell me um, a little more about that one mm-hmm. about about your being voted to be the, the CEO of Teleprompter. Well, uh, of course, I, I had uh, gotten to know 
the teleprompter guys, most of the major players in the industry as running Gerald and provide, you know, selling him stuff and financing stuff with him and so on. And uh, Irving Kahn at the time knew that he was in legal trouble coming out of the Johnstown bribery right. Right. Uh, case and knew that he was not, that there was a high probability that he wasn't going to be able to stay as a, as a CEO of teleprompter. So he offered me the job and, uh, and uh, I accepted subject to thinking about it. And, and I called him up a couple of, and, and they actually went and I interviewed with the used guys who were a major shareholder then of Good. the teleprompter and, and uh, everybody, everything was copacetic and I was going to take the job. And then I, I, at the last minute I thought, well, you know, the one guy I haven't met is Jack Kent Cook. And isn't he a major shareholder and shouldn't I meet him? And uh, Irving said, no, that probably wouldn't be appropriate. <laughs> At which point I discovered that there was a war about to explode on the scene for control of the teleprompter between Cook and, and, uh, and Irving. And so I uh, passed on the opportunity. And Hub Schlafly ended up, you know, getting stuffed into that job for a yeah. while. Then uh, I got an inquiry from uh, Steve Ross at Warner, and uh, did I want to go do that? And unfortunately, the first thing I would have had to have done is have a, a, a difficult posture with, uh, with the uh, fellow that they had just bought a big company from. And I didn't really like that too much. Plus, the other, the other issue there was uh, New York headquarters. And while Steve said, well, you can have, you can live in Connecticut and have a limo and all that kind of stuff. I didn't think that was the life I was looking forward to. And then the third guy was Bob Magnus, who was out here in Denver. And, and Bob was, uh, just an intriguing kind of a guy. And TCI was my kind of a company. And, you know, they were so broke at the time. They, Bob used to say, we're, we're so broke. We got to look up to see bottom, you know, lower than whale (laughs) shit. Very colorful expressions, but but it was the opportunity I thought in my mind to get the family out of the New York metro and uh, into clear and clean and beautiful Colorado, and uh, so that's the direction that I, I took a fifty percent pay cut and uh, and agreed to buy a bunch of stock, which turned out to be underwater very quickly uh, before I even got on the scene. Um, but uh, that brought me out to Denver. And, uh, but they were guys that you know, I'd gotten to know over the prior couple of years, Sparkman and Bill Brazil and yeah. Carter Page, Larry Romrell, Don right. Fisher. And I kind of liked them. I liked the attitude. It was a layback. And, you, and you knew them from the Gerald relationship. Absolutely. I and knew so, them intimately. From, yeah. I'd been selling to them and then <laughs> trying to collect from them right. for, for several years. <laughs> right. So I sort of knew, uh, you know, knew to some degree what I was getting into. And uh, and n- never uh, never looked back. So Bob hired me. Uh, he, the the issue was how to talk my wife Leslie into it. And uh, so he said, "Well, we can't be seen together in Denver. People have figured out. So why don't you guys come down to my place in Scottsdale?" So we went down there in the middle of the winter. And of course, he says Denver's kind of like this in the winter. And, uh, <laughs> and other assorted minor uh, stretching of the truth. But at any rate, took. Took the job with Bob, and I came on as uh, president and CEO in 19. It was actually I joined the company on April Fool's Day in 1973, and uh, um, 
never got a promotion for all those many years. That's uh it's interesting because you, you you're making that decision and joining it uh, obviously changed the course of the uh, of the industry over time and it's yeah. uh to some because, degree you know but of course, mostly, it, had you gone to Warner it probably yeah. would have done the same thing but it would have been a different yeah because it would, been, it would have been a different path, Steve but Steve had the had the he was the only guy wanting to come into the industry with resources right and uh, had they spent their money in an acquisition strategy rather than a franchising strategy. They could have owned the whole industry because yes. for a fraction of what they spent trying to build the Akron's, yep. they uh, they could have owned the equities in the industry as things yes. turned out. Yep. But um, you know. well, what about John? The, those, those early years with TCI when you, you really didn't have any any financing. And, well, then, and, yeah, and, I, and I, you, you, were, you were getting you were getting loans from <laughs> banks, and things were a little tough. Tell me yeah. about well, that. I love to think <laughs> about the industry in, in stages, and the first stage that I experienced was was the stay alive stage. You know, uh, from the day I joined, the, the phone started ringing at home from the banks and the creditors, and you know. Right. Uh, and you'd go to these bank meetings and they'd say, well, how are you going to pay us back? And you'd say, well, I thought you guys might have something in your file to give me a clue. <laughs> it was, it was, it was uh, a, a tough period because the industry had overexpanded up until 72, 73, had built a lot of markets where the, the programming was not sufficient to drive the consumers, uh, uh, the penetrations and the, and the companies had largely borrowed the money in order to do their capital expenditures. So the cable industry was awash in debt, uh, inadequate cash flow, and commitments to cities that were far beyond their financial ability to perform. And so I, I used to joke about it. The first couple of years here, I spent half my time going to New York and uh, getting beat up by the banks, and the other half of my time going to the cities and reneging on commitments. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we got very close. I think there were a few months there where we were very, very close. We cut the the uh, work hours back to 30-hour work weeks so we could mm-hmm. save on payroll. Uh, we really skinned it down as tight as we could, and we just floated the boat over the reef, you know, just barely. Yep. Um, so there were about four years there from, say, 73 till 77 when we really – we were borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, and it was very, very tight. And that was true for a lot in the industry. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I remember I had an opportunity to buy Gene Schneider's company, United Video was what it was called at the time, right. for 1.4 million bucks. And we couldn't come up, we couldn't find the 1.4 <laughs> million bucks. But I tried. I, I, because of our relations with, with General Instruments, uh, we, we had the opportunity to, to buy it and sell them back some equipment that, that Gene had an inventory, and I almost pulled it off where I <laughs> could buy their equity with the uh, money I got back from uh, selling back equipment to a vendor. But things were very tight, and uh, the industry really didn't have a lot of uh, programming to promote. The broadcasters, to a large degree, controlled the regulatory process and had the cable industry bottled up. Right. We had very little flexibility in terms of programming. And uh, so that was kind of where the industry was for for TCI and to some degree the industry. Uh, things started to get a little bit better when 
when HBO uh, came on the scene. And, and really the thing that turned the industry was the combination of HBO and the geostationary satellite uh, and the FCC being willing to allow smaller satellite receivers. Right. That All of those hit almost simultaneously, and then Ted was able to put TBS up on the satellite. Yep. And so for the first time, the industry had programming beyond broadcast retransmission that was meaningful. Well, you know, you, you, when you refer to, to HBO and then to Turner getting up on satellite, you, you, you really, to go back to an earlier comment you made about uh, inadequate programming, now all of a sudden mm-hmm. you've got things that might cause people to buy this in, mm-hmm. in larger markets where they've already got a reasonable amount of television. Right. So maybe we, we could talk about the, about the programming side of it and how that built up and mm-hmm. what it then did for the industry. Right. Well, I give uh, Jerry Levin and, and uh, the uh, the guys at Time Inc. a lot of credit because they uh, they drove and made the took the risk capital investment to uh, put HBO up on the satellite. Up until then, it had been a regional thing, and in fact, uh, you know, we had owned the regional pay TV operation, which we sold to HBO, mm-hmm. and then a little later mm-hmm. than that, Showtime came along and got founded. But uh, but for for once, cable had reached critical mass to have enough potential customers that those kinds of programming investments made sense. And uh, HBO was a real driver in those days, as was as was WTBS. So that by the you know seventy eight seventy nine, the industry was starting to gain a little momentum. Uh, TCI itself was able to get refinanced. We were able to take our bank credit out that had strangled us for four years and, uh, and replace it with a, a group of insurance companies. And, uh, for the first time we had some financial flexibility. Mm-hmm. To give you some example, Trigger, how tough it was in those, in those late seventies, we had a covenant in our bank loan agreement that said we could spend no more money on pay television than we could generate from pay television, which is kind of an interesting... It makes it a little tough to invest in programming. <laughs> it made it a little tough to invest in programming. And uh, so finally, once we were able to break out of that, for instance, the satellite receivers you needed in those days were quite expensive. Right. And we had no room in our capital budget or our bank agreements to put satellite receivers in. Well, so, it's, it's interesting when I think about that because, because uh, of course... When HBO started, it was UA, Columbia, and ourselves at, at ATC, right. and then Teleprompter right. came along closely after that. So the thing that was really constraining you at that time was your, your covenants wouldn't allow you to get out and and get going That's until right. you could you could sort of prove. Yeah, the yeah. risk capital was just not available <laughs> up <laughs> until probably seventy eight, seventy nine. Finally, about seventy eight or seventy nine. You know, everything started to work. We started to get refinanced. Uh, we got a little bit of elbow room in terms of our ability to spend capital. Yeah. We, we had a relaxation of our corporate structure so that the portion of it that was financed uh, and highly leveraged became restricted. And we developed right. things called unrestricted subsidiaries and, <laughs> and, uh, and off-balance sheet transactions. And, right. and we started to do that quite heavily. So... At that point, I think the industry uh, 
uh, two things started to happen. One was that the metropolitan markets started to look, especially the suburbs of the metropolitan markets, started Mm -hmm. to look like better economic propositions. And uh, they started to develop, and that spurred the development of the technology so that Mm -hmm. we had more channels. Uh, The set-top box, uh, the converter started to uh, come down in cost and improve in reliability and quality. And that fed back to the programming world and said, if you can develop programming, we have more channels available. So it all sort of started to to feed itself mm-hmm. and, and to build a, a video business. Uh, and the improving capital uh, uh, base of the, of the major cable operators put them in a position to start consolidating the smaller operators so that increasingly scale of scale economics started to play a role for the cable industry for the operators uh, as well as for the programmers and that and that two went hand in hand but uh, you know a good friend of ours uh, Nick Nicholas I can remember uh, when he was he was asked by the timing board to study whether or not a, an all news channel on cable would be economically viable. And after studying it pretty hard, he reported to the board that, that it was a good idea, but it would not be economically viable. Almost simultaneously, Ted Turner launched <laughs> exactly. CNN. Exactly. And uh, the thing that was missing from... Possibly a difference in length of vision there. <laughs> I don't think it was so much that as it was that, that Nick just assumed that you couldn't charge for it. Yeah. For some reason... Uh, his pro forma had no subscription <laughs> revenue. And of course, Ted's did. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, just a simple uh, uh, difference as that uh, led Ted to have the successful launch of CNN. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can remember at one uh, NCTA meeting, I was on a panel, and it was in the, I think, in the very early 80s. And uh, and I, I had changed my mind. I had, I had really fought tooth and nail with Drew Lewis to prevent MTV from charging us for MTV. And the reason was I didn't think they needed the money. They were, they were doing quite well without a subscription fee. But I basically said, I, uh, you know, our company was willing to entertain subscription fees for basic cable channels if the channels fit a unique uh, niche because what we could see was the positive economics mm-hmm. of uh, of driving subscriber penetration by filling niches. Right. And uh, so after that, you know, not only were we willing to talk to people about that, but we were willing to invest our capital in programming ideas uh, that had this dual stream of income. And that that really fueled fueled the the. A lot of entrepreneurs and others taking the risk to try to start these channels. Right. Uh, you know, uh, John Hendricks was a good example. Uh, the Discovery Channel idea was his. Mm-hmm. And initially, some venture capital money from Allen and Company and Westinghouse funded it. But they told him they couldn't put any more money in. And so they had withdrawn, and he was about to shut down. And uh, John C., for us, uh ran around and s- to see if he could put together an investor group, right. which he was successful in doing. Yep. And it was basically us and United, Gene Schneider, and uh, Newhouse, right. and uh, Cox. Yeah. And uh, we're still partners in it today. 
it's been a, a great business. Uh, Bob Johnson from Black Entertainment Television, who was on the staff at NCTA, came up to me after an NCTA meeting and said, do you think there would be any hope for a black channel aimed at the black you know, demographic? And uh, I was very enthusiastic about it because we were trying to build in some markets, heavy black neighborhoods, right. and we didn't have anything to talk to them about. And so we put up uh, what we could afford, a small amount of seed capital. Uh, we eventually talked the Time Inc. guys into mm-hmm. coming in with us. Then they got back out. We got the Taft people in, and they got back out. <laughs> we had a number of partners over the years, including Mario Gabelli. But at the end of the day, uh, Bob was very successful, and he retained uh, majority ownership all the way through, Yes, which was quite a testimony to his doggedness, his willingness to uh, keep his budget down and, and grow the business. So there were a long list of programming ideas that, that blossomed during that period. And, uh, you know, some of them uh, uh, have been wonderful successes and some of them have been dismal failures. <laughs> you know, remember the Christian Science Monitor channel. I remember it well. Didn't quite make it. But um, but that was, that was part of that era of... Uh, we're seeing a rapid expansion in the number of subscribers and the number of subscribers with the equipment to receive multiple channels. Right. And that just was a wonderful uh, bed for the creation of, of these new service offerings, whether it was ESPN or, or you know, CNN and its variants, TBS, TNT, and so on. Mm-hmm. So the whole industry, I think, was gaining momentum and strength from this programming. Mm-hmm. Um, still, and of course, I mean, it was gaining it because <laughs> because the consumer liked it. Uh, liked it. Yeah, the and consumer it was, liked it. It was very different from what was right. available on commercial television. But politically, the industry was still pretty well bottled up by the broadcasters, who who held a lot more political sway. And really, that situation, in my mind, didn't start to change until the publishers the newspaper publishers started to invest heavily in the cable industry. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there was a split in terms of political power right. with the publishers, even those who own broadcast stations, <laughs> having to make that decision as to did they want to push their cable fortunes or did they want to push their broadcast fortunes. And fortunately for us, enough of them switched, whether it was Times Mirror or or, or uh, Scripps Howard yeah. or Tribune, right? Uh, to where Providence Journal, Providence Journal, <laughs> right. yes, and um, Cox, and Cox, and Taft, and yeah. that uh, we actually ended up, uh, I think, winning the deregulation battle uh, largely on the backs of the publishers who were invested in the cable industry. Yeah, because they they had they had clout in Washington in that deregulation battle. Uh, right. was was so much well we had uh, three three things going for us we had Tim Worth yeah, right you know to this day I'll remember <laughs> seeing thinking all, all was lost and then at the end he pulled it out in the congressional he did a fabulous show uh, we had the broadcasters with us but most of all we had the public starting to like this thing called cable so you know, even though we got beat up all the time about we charged for something that people thought they should get for free, nonetheless, it was becoming addictive in the average American household. Right. They just 
You were saying we had the broadcasters. You met the publishers with us. We had the publishers with us, broadcasters against us. And and frankly, the telephone industry is still asleep. Yeah, which was a great, you know, great thing for us. Although in the '84 battle, they put up an enormous fight at the end. At the end, yeah, just at the very end, but it was too late for them. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it it was the industry uh, that that I would call was the the youthful period of the industry. I mean, a period of great energy, great creativity. People were were uh, finding the capital to pursue their opportunities, and even though there were uh, oscillations in the uh, you know in the in the capital markets, still the cable uh, vector was pretty much straight up all through that period. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, both the technology was coming along, and the uh, the scale was coming up, and uh, everything was working. Yep. And so for the companies who were in it, they were receiving, you know, adequate capital returns, able to raise capital, able to reinvest. And, of course, it's been the history of our industry that uh, that nobody ever takes any money out of operating the cable business. They plow everything back, plus whatever yeah. they can borrow right. <laughs> and whatever they can raise. And, and people only take money out of the cable industry when they actually sell out and go away. <clears throat> And most of those guys aren't smart enough to stay out. <laughs> they generally uh, <coughs> come back want in. to turn around and put their money back in because <laughs> they haven't found another industry that's as much fun as the cable industry's been. So, I mean, the industry has had a wonderful history of, uh, of people enjoying it, enjoying the relationships and, and wanting to stay associated with it. Let me, let me, while we're on that subject, let, let me yeah, ask you something. And before we get to, issues on how you took this colossus and mm-hmm. and began to figure out how to how to rationalize it in the in the future that there's this issue when you're, you're talking about regulation and talking about the relationship with congress of you know sort of the 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 john malone that a lot of people will mm-hmm. talk about which is is a, a fellow who's who's got enormous vision financial and structuring capabilities better technology understanding than any of the other chief executives across the media businesses mm-hmm. and the telecommunications business. Um, and I think that it's generally agreed that you have all of those things. Plus, you've created great relationships with a lot of critical people. Um, you've got really good entrepreneurial drive. I mean, it's really outstanding. You put all that together from the vision through all the skills and the, and the drive. Uh, they're all the positives. But, yeah. but there are those who have said, Gee, John has a blind spot, and the blind spot might have something to do with public policy, regulation, uh, the public process. I hate those guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a certain impatience that people have noticed. Well, they're irrational. <laughs> the, the problem is, I'm a I'm a planner, and I like predictable predictable processes. Right. And when you get into the law and you get into into politics, you can't predict it. It becomes just a wild card. And it's been very hard over the years to deal with that. You know, I mean, as you know, because you ran a cable company, the local franchising process was was brain damaging alone. Maddening. But then if you stack that up with multiple layers of regulations and yeah. and then you got uh, antitrust laws being administered by three different federal agencies and, and by the states, you, you get such a, a, a maze yes. that it doesn't lend itself to 
I forget which side of the brain is supposed to process this, <laughs> but to that kind of processing. Yeah. So you can't you can't anticipate and predict it. And yeah. so you have to develop a philosophy about it. And probably, you know, most of uh, what's what's a blind spot in me, I, I would say, is just uh, the attitude that I've developed, which is you just go do it. And when they tell you you can't, then you back up and you and you negotiate with them. Right. But you don't. Or go off 10 degrees and yeah, go you there. Just, you just, it's like the old tank. You know, it, it bumps into something, backs up, and goes over here. And you keep trying until you find something that works. Right. I mean, there are things that, that we've tried to do over the years that, uh, that we've been stopped on. Yeah. I mean, probably the most persistent thing I've always wanted to be involved in is satellite. I've always wanted to be in the satellite business. I always thought that satellite was a great complement to cable. Because it would give you ubiquitous distribution. And plus, the satellite as a transport mechanism fulfills a need for cable. And the ubiquity fulfills a need for the public. And, you know, from the earliest days, uh, the regulatory and political processes kept cable companies out of satellite. Right. And I always thought that was a terrible public policy mistake which I tried to overcome in all kinds of structural <laughs> ways by, you know, Prime Star. Well, we really started with Scientific Atlanta and a thing called HomeSat. When the small uh, satellite receiver for C-band first became available, uh, we started mm-hmm. a company called HomeSat. And uh, we were going to sell a service to rural households uh, based upon a small C-band dish. Um the, there was no scrambling at the time. And so we, you know, we found ourselves in a great deal of difficulty trying to sell something that people could steal. Uh, later on, when we finally scrambled, um, which incidentally is really where a lot of my disagreements with Vice President Gore originated. Right. Uh, but we did scramble the satellite signals. We launched a channel called Netlink and we became, you know, directly or indirectly, the major provider of satellite services to homeowners who owned um, satellite C-band dishes. We then uh, ultimately ended up creating something called the Prime Star, which you may remember, <laughs> which was a joint venture in the cable industry to, uh, uh, to offer a K-band, KU-band satellite uh, services using digital compression. Most people don't realize, but PrimeStar was the first company that used digital compression on satellite. DirecTV at the time was still strictly analog um, mm-hmm. and uh, did not use any compression. Yep. So we were earliest in that. But our efforts to grow that business were blocked by uh, regulatory barriers. Well, and I used to figure that, that there was an answer to this, of course, which was, and the reason why it was all very logical, or should be, was that, that of course, if, if you looked at the public policy people, the, the regulators, the legislators, mm-hmm. at the various levels, of course, their interest was in the consumer and in the public. Mm-hmm. And so if you just thought that way, uh, I must admit that I discovered I was wrong, <laughs> and therefore, <laughs> therefore, it really wasn't a very logical process. And it yeah. was, and, and not to say that some of them didn't care, but it, but it was not consistent. Well, uh, you know, I had a, a, a private meeting with Vice President Gore when he was still Senator Gore, uh, actually right here in Denver. Uh, it's been a very nice evening, and and uh, he's he's a lot smarter than he looks. Let's put it that way. But uh, 
I tried to convince him that that a regulated satellite service by the cable industry for the rural part of the country right. uh, would be much more cost effective than a you know an effort to build a standalone satellite system just for the rural areas. And uh, I didn't succeed in that, but I thought it was a pretty good pretty good pitch. Uh, at any rate, I mean, we persisted with PrimeStar right up to the point where our our uh, license to uh, to buy a uh, you know high speed right. uh, satellite, our joint venture with Rupert Murdoch to use his license, yes. uh, was shot down by the government. So yeah. we persisted all the way through and ultimately sold PrimeStar to Directv. Broke my heart, <laughs> and I was the only guy that took stock. Everybody else took cash, and the stock. Did all right. We hedged it when it was higher. So, yeah, I mean, uh, technologically, I've always, you know, I always thought that was great. Yep. And and so, uh, you know, I tend to think about, you know, having started my career with the Bell system and thought that AT&T was actually doing a fabulous job of providing communications for America. America in those days had far and away the best telephone system in the world. No question. Plus, yeah. it had this huge resource called Bell Labs that was inventing almost everything that was new in technology, the laser, the transistor, you name it, they invented yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and when they broke the Bell system up, it created a few jobs for a few guys, mostly lawyers, and substantially degraded the quality of the American telephone system. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not entirely sure that for those kinds of services that a deregulated competitive model is the right model, you know, I, in my own mind. I think maybe yeah. a regulated, uh, an intelligently regulated, um, you know, monopoly model may actually be better for certain services mm-hmm. and less disruptive to the public. And uh, even though, you know, it gets wasteful at times and it's slower sometimes in implementing things, the scale economics of it is overwhelming. Yeah. Anyway, mixed emotions about all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't automatically buy that competition is the right answer in every situation. And I certainly have never contested the duty or the right or the appropriateness of the government regulating certain aspects of the business. Right. What bothers, has always bothered me is, is when they can't be clear about their regulation and they say they leave a businessman in a, in a realm of grayness. So you don't know, are they going to let you do this or aren't they going to let you do it? And you find yourself doing it, knowing that the odds are that they may or may not, you know, and in the end, uh, generally speaking, you negotiate your way through and you get the thing done, even though um, at the the inception you didn't know that that it was going to happen. Well, so, I think I think the thing you mentioned about the different layers of of, of, of regulation mm-hmm. too, which which don't end up always being duplicative, but sometimes they're at odds with each other, just make it extraordinarily different. Absolutely, business I mean, right, right now, yeah. in, in in terms of uh, antitrust policy, uh, you know, we have the FCC feeling an antitrust orientation, right. plus the Justice Department, plus the Federal Trade Commission at the right. federal level, right. and then we have many state AGs who also feel that they have a role to play in antitrust. And none of them have well-developed theories that you can study and say, okay, here's how they want a company to behave. Yeah. So as a result, it's kind of a gray area, and I think it's damaging really to the way business operates. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the tax code, you know. You know, if, as you reflect on all this, I mean, a, a truly uh, 
a magnificent career uh, and a lot of accomplishments. Some ups and downs, yeah, obviously, nice. as you've gone along, which makes it more yeah. interesting. Uh, do you have any uh, sort of any any major uh, uh, lessons that you've learned uh, <laughs> or things that you want to pass on to folks to think about? No, I'd say I, I just thank God that I landed in this industry uh, that uh, you know, my relationship with Bob Magnus was just fabulous over the years. Uh, yep. You know, he was a friend, uh, a mentor, father, whatever. Yep. Just just fabulous. And generally speaking, the people in the industry uh, have been wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. to deal with. We've had our had our characters and our personalities. and uh, But I don't think uh, I could have picked an industry. I don't think there exists an industry. Uh, with quite the the mix of personalities and entrepreneurship, and uh, that that I could have uh, had near the enjoyment that I've had of uh, just being in this industry and being part of it. It's been a great industry. Hopefully, it'll continue to be a great industry. I mean, it's it, the industry's uniqueness and its ability to support entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. uh, to listen to innovation and implement innovation. Uh, to take a Bob Johnson uh, and uh, make him uh, a huge contributor uh, and very successful personally, mm-hmm. or John Hendricks with Discovery, or you go down the list of, of the hundreds of, of entrepreneurs that have flourished in this industry. I think you can't point to any other industry that's anywhere close. Next up, Bill Daniels. In 1952, 32-year-old Bill Daniels, war veteran and oil insurance salesman, stopped at a bar in Denver on his way to Casper, Wyoming, and saw television for the first time. He immediately saw its potential and set off to bring TV to Casper, convincing local businessmen and the local bank to add significantly to his small personal investment. From there, Daniels built more systems, became the second president of the NCTA, and formed Daniels & Associates, which became a top cable brokerage firm. A beloved philanthropist, Daniels passed away in 2000. So now we're we're, uh, down to uh, uh, your first view of of television. And uh, I recall that there were, as I said earlier, there were an extensive amount of magazine coverage in the early days, and uh, the Wednesday night fights... (laughs) In, that you saw and so on, uh, and I've gone through them. Would you say that uh, in most instances they uh, they're fairly accurate because they quote you a great deal? I don't know how complete they are because I can see already from our just talking this morning that they you know an editor cuts out stuff that he doesn't want. But what there is in Cablevision, you know, the 25th anniversary issue, yeah. okay, which was a marvelous section, uh, they're fairly accurate, aren't they? Yes, they are. And if, for the purposes of, uh, of this, if we wanted to use them as reference materials, uh, that is to say, kind of footnote, uh, see Cablevision, uh, whatever the date was, July 83 and so on. Max, all the stuff that's been written about me, and I've benefited from great press, uh, is 99% correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it, uh, an over-eager reporter yes. would amplify, but the guts of all the articles are uh, are are right on, mm-hmm. and I've been entirely uncritical of them. 
Uh, I, people call me the father of cable television. I never have known why. Uh, maybe it's because of my age. Uh, I consider the father of cable television to be the Marty Malarkey or John Walston, uh, both who were in the business longer than I was. Uh, if there's any reason they call me the father of because I think I was the first guy who recognized it as being a hell of a potential business. And I brought the financial community in and worked at that to really make it a, a business rather than an extension right. of a, an appliance to shop. And I want to, I want to get into that because that to me uh, is, is very, very important, very significant in terms of the early years of the cable television pioneers. Uh, but I see that, that there are other aspects uh, of your uniqueness, and I'm not, you know, buttering you up, but I'm, I'm doing a historical review. Uh, I see, for example, again, my familiarity with it, I'm not a stranger to the field, as you know, uh, is that there are certain unique aspects of your role, Bill Daniels, as a cable television pioneer. Am I correct, for example, in my understanding that one of the unique aspects is that you were one of the very early operators in the Western Mountain area, right? Yes, and the first in the world to use microwave ah, okay. to get cable to uh, that wasn't just over the hill. Like Marty in Pennsylvania and those guys, all they had to do was go over the hill. Put the stick up in the mountain. We had to uh, microwave our, our signals 200 miles from right. uh, where we picked up the Denver station to get into Casper. Now, and that so, was a real breakthrough. Yeah. Now, tell me, tell me, for example, in which was the first system that you set up? Casper, Wyoming. Casper, Wyoming. And now, how, how did you get that first franchise? Oh. Casper didn't know anything about yeah. cable television, did I, you? Uh, I was struggling in my insurance business, and I got on the airplane. I'll never forget, I had a pair of cowboy boots on and kind of a cowboy suit, because I live in Wyoming. I thought I should look like a cowboy. <laughs> I went back to Pottsville to visit Marty Malarkey. Uh, did you know him by that time? Never met him. How did you find uh, out about him? Through Gerald. Oh, uh, through Mill Chap. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, I think it was Saul Garfield at the time. If you remember yeah. Saul. And yeah. I said, uh, I got to meet this guy, Malarkey. We didn't even have a trade association then, so no. I went back to Possible. I'll never forget it. Marty charged me 500 bucks a day to talk to me. You're kidding. No. And this is 1940 or 50? Early part of 53. Right, right. Mm hmm. <laughs> and I spent That's two days funny. with Marty. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Happily paid him the 500 bucks a day mm -hmm. to pick his brain. And I said, how do I get started and so forth? He said, would you just go to the city and get a permit? And I've, not, I've been kind of sorry I ever did that because I don't think we needed him in those days, but I did it anyway. Because by going to the city of Casper and asking for a permit, started instant publicity in the newspaper so that it was no problem at all but I got some ink saying hey some guy is going to want to build a thing here to bring television to Casper and uh, it was free publicity so I got the permit so that was good the publicity it was, was good, good publicity right. sure people had no television yeah and the city wrote I think a one-page permit, uh, it wasn't a franchise, uh, just a permit to, to use the streets and alleys. Right. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from Marty, and I did that. And uh, then I had Gerald come to town. 
when John Garfield came to town. And he thought I was crazy because uh, the TV signal was so far away. He thought I was crazy, but he was eager to sell the equipment. Now, what would you have gotten uh, uh, primarily? We picked up Denver, and we picked up one channel. All we could bring in was one channel. How were you getting that? We picked it up on we had an antenna site on a mountain near, near uh, Laramie, where the University of Wyoming is. Uh -huh. And then we pumped it through the Bell system, bought the microwave from them, and pumped that 200 miles into the city of Casper. Did you lease a channel from them in the microwave? Leased a channel, one oh, channel. Okay. And we had to put up $125,000 in cash for a bond in case we couldn't pay the monthly rental, which I think was about 8000 bucks a month. Mm. And we didn't have one customer. And... Uh, we start out with one channel, and they built a facility especially for us. They didn't use existing facilities. Hmm. And uh, I'll never forget that uh, Zal Garfield told us that he, he wanted to sell the equipment. But in those days, Mike, the deal was they sold you the equipment, and then they got 25 cents per month per subscriber for every subscriber that we got on the cable system. In addition to the cost of the installation? Yes. But they, were, they had no competition those days. Yes, you know, nobody else was making the equipment but right. uh, And we paid them. Now, where were you getting the money at that time? I got uh, a group of local oil men together in Casper. Uh -huh. I had no money. Yeah. Uh, I had 5000 bucks. I think I put in the deal. And I got a group of local oil men and a prominent lawyer who was later a judge. And they had good, solid names in the community, and they were my stockholders. And uh, we raised a total, we raised $125,000, a lot of borrowed funds they brought at the bank, but I had the money to work on. And then we had about another 250000 bucks, which we started on. And that came also from local from investors? Man, came from their credit at the banks. It all came from a bank, but they personally borrowed the money at the bank, and, uh, which is the way you do business, really. And, uh, but we were charging 150 bucks per connection. Mm-hmm, yeah because we had a monopoly. Right. And with every 150 bucks we got, we would build a couple more blocks of plant down, down the alley to get more customers. Right. Yeah. And we charged 750 a month for one channel. And it was just one channel. Mm -hmm. Casper didn't have a local station. No local station. And uh, every 90 days, we'd send our then customers a poll, and they'd pick what programs they wanted to watch. It was just black and white then. Yeah. And uh, the majority ruled. If more people want to see I Love Lucy than Sid Caesar, that's what we showed. On Wednesday night? Yeah, whatever night it was. Right, I and, know. And uh, we just sent them a, they checked what they wanted, and the majority ruled. Now, that was true democracy in those days. Yeah. <laughs> but we only had one channel capacity. Right. And uh, then through the years, we gradually increased the, the number of channels, and uh, so we didn't have to do that anymore. And this was still in Casper? system is still in Casper and uh, done extremely well. Yeah. Forty United, it was the backbone of what is now United Cable. It, was that their first system, their first system they built? Yes. Well, it was Gene Snyder and Richard Snyder went to work for me. Uh -huh. They were both engineers out uh -huh. of the University of Texas, and they went to work for me knowing nothing about the cable business, but they were engineers, and they did one hell of a job. And Gene, the older brother, who is now chairman and CEO of United, was mm -hmm. the chief operating guy, and his brother Richard was the chief engineer, and in United today, Gene is still the chief operating and CEO, and his brother is uh, 
is the chief engineer. But they started with me in 1953. And United had done extremely well. But Casper, they ended up buying the other stopovers out. And that was the foundation of what is today United Cable. Starting about 55, man. And that's when it dawned on me that there's a business here. And I wasn't crazy about the oil insurance business, but I did well in it. And about that time, I decided I'm going to move to Denver. And I'm going to uh, establish a company performs investment banking services for the community and tenant television business. And I did that. And, uh, now, if I can ahead. interrupt, just interrupt, the, I don't want to spoil your chain of thought. Uh, it was, it's been written that your first uh, inkling, as it were, of, of the potential of this was when people came to you during your term as president of the, uh, what was today NCTA was called different in those days, and that you felt that uh, you gave them advice and you felt that to have actually participated in this thing would have presented a conflict. Is that accurate? Yes, and I didn't feel as when I was president of our trade association, I should use that mm -hmm. for my personal gain. Right. Uh, that, that bothered me. But I advised people on how to build a system, who to call, who to talk to, uh, in those days, it was a little early for people to start buying and selling because we were all so damn new. That's right. Uh, but I could see that that was starting to happen. Uh, where can I buy a system? Well, there were none for sale then. Uh, how do I go about building? Well, I'd put them in touch at that time with Zal Garfield and mm -hmm. the people Gerald mm -hmm. and uh, tell them the same things that Marty had told me and help them get on because we want the business to grow. The more people in the business, the more, the better association we'd have. Uh, so, as soon as I went out of office at, uh, as the NCTA president, I guess we call it president. Yeah, it was president. You were then president. Then I opened up my shop yeah. and picked the name Daniels Associates and did it full time. Now, before, before we get to that stage, uh, as the second president, uh, following Marty Malarkey, of uh, what is now NCTA, the Trade Association, uh, this was in the period of 1956-57, when uh, the FCC was uh, just be really beginning to become aware of what it considered to be its regulatory responsibilities, vis-a-vis -vis television, the then infant uh, UHF industry and uh, the local broadcast station, you know that whole thing. What, uh, what were your feelings with your associates in the trade association of, in terms of your problems with, you know, it's generally recognized that, that the commission wasn't exactly pro-cable in those days, which is probably an understatement, right? What was your attitude uh, with regard to the problems and how did you you know, what did you do in terms of the government, I mean, the federal government and Congress, and then later on with some of the local municipalities in terms of advancing what you and your associates in the trade association felt to be, uh, you know, what they felt were blocking uh, the uh, growth of, of cable? Uh, we formed the National Community Television Association in the Nico Allen Hotel in Fosco, Pennsylvania, 
There are about eight of us there, and Max, I've forgotten why we formed it, but we were formed like all trade associations because we had a common problem. Right. And frankly, I've forgotten what the problem was. That's been so long ago, but I can remember this. I can remember that having fought in World War II in Korea, and having been the cable a short period of time, and having the government tell me what I could and could not do, I deeply resented because I thought, well, I'll wait a minute, goddammit, I've been out there busting my ass and getting <laughs> shot at, and all I want to do is make a living. And I wasn't used to controls of any kind, yeah. you know, other than my military discipline. Right. And you might remember, I don't remember what our first problem was in the cable industry. I know that uh, we got together, Marty got us together, and I can't remember what the hell the reason was. But we were so badly outnumbered by the broadcasters, Max, in the early days. My God, uh, the broadcasters had any time a, a, a congressman or a United States senator came back to his hometown, getting on TV station was of utmost importance to him. We couldn't offer that to a, a politician. Because you had no origination. That's right. Uh, and uh, we still don't do a good job of that, but we're getting better all the time. But uh, we were outnumbered politically, and, and our our enemies weren't only the broadcasters. Let me just list a few of them. Well, please, that's what I want this before. for, right. And it amazed me because we were really just getting started. Uh, in 1955, the year I went in as president of the NCGA, I think we had something like 300 cable systems, 400 maybe. Uh, we were, Pennsylvania was getting pretty well blanketed because of the terrain. Mm -hmm. uh, parts of the Northwest, uh, Wyoming and our little operation, that was really about it. But even at that early stage, the people who saw us at the threat started to service the telephone companies. They were concerned about us. We had a wire. That's interesting. We had a wire going into the home that was capable of sound and audio. Video. I, I mean, yeah, sound and video, audio and video. Right. They didn't have that capacity. They still don't have that capacity. Right. Uh, the theater owners, they were concerned about us bringing movies on television from the bigger markets into the small towns. The three networks were fighting us. Mm -hmm. They didn't know why, but it was exactly. the thing to do to be opposed to cable because <laughs> we were That's right. spreading their signal uh, uh, out of the Denver market to all of the Rocky Mountain area. They'd lost control of their signal, so to speak. Uh, city government started to think, now what are these guys up to? County commissioners, uh, public utilities commissions, what are these guys up to? Mm -hmm. The FCC, congressmen because of the power that the TV station had over their congressmen and their senators. Uh, that's a pretty tough group of enemies to have at that What time. friends did you have, as they say? We had none, except the public. <laughs> and I've often said that the two friends we've had from the day one have been Main Street and Wall Street. That's interesting. That's interesting. And Main Street is the public because the public wanted more television. Mm -hmm or they wanted some television, in, or there was no television in the markets, they wanted some television. In markets where they had one or two stations, they wanted more. Variety. And the people who financed us, the bankers and so forth, uh, 
they were excited about us because they could see a new communications industry, and we were serviced our debt beautifully. And I'll get to that. Uh, I'll get to that later. But that's interesting that um, that you put it that way. That uh, uh, I haven't read that way, but that, that that's really a, a turn of phrase. That the only friends you had were Main Street and Wall Street, that, and that's true. I mean, I can remember later on when I came into practice, the kinds of things that people out in what we call disreputably the boondocks, what the lengths to which they would go to get a snowy picture. I mean, some of the farmers in the plains would put up a 200-foot stick, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. Just to get a picture from Omaha or somewhere. Sure, and we could always call upon our subscribers and Casper. Uh, let's say we're up to 2,000 subscribers, uh, and we had a problem with the FCC, and they're going to try and take away that one or stop them from another. Mm -hmm. All we had to do was write a little letter, and boy, they'd really write letters to the FCC, because right. goddamn it, that's the only way they could get television. I remember that. I remember that. That is to say, what I'm about to ask you about is you being the pioneer in attracting the financial institutions to the cable industry in a significant way. And to me, the importance of that is not only uh, in terms of the history of the cable television industry, but I see it, and I've talked to people about it and they agree, I see this as being tremendous significance to uh, people interested in business administration. Uh, I could see that uh, the business administration schools would uh, if they had their heads on their shoulders, uh, be fascinated by how did Bill Daniels get Wall Street and the other financial uh, investment houses interested in something which the rest of the financial community thought to be some kind of dumb operation in the boondocks. So what I'd like to ask is uh, what I think is one of the most significant developments in the growth of the industry, and that was getting the money into it, getting the big money into it. So tell us, give me, if you would, a specific example, let's say, of the first large, you know, significant contact that you had. Uh, you know, where was it? What criteria were they using? What response were you having? Uh, you know, what kind of persuasion techniques to these state establishment guys who said, you know, who the hell is this guy? Well, the first people I had to convince were buyers of cable properties. This was before Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And if you recall on our earlier conversation, I had never had an accounting course, and I don't have a formal education. I've never been in the investment banking business. I've never worked for a bank. The first transaction of any size was a system I sold for one million bucks, and it was owned by a fellow named Joe Sericks, S-A-R-I-C-K-S, in Bradford, Pennsylvania. And he wanted a million bucks in cash for his property. In cash? In cash. And he wanted <laughs> what year was this? He priced it. I didn't. This was 1956. 1956. Yeah. And he knew that I was in the business because I'd sent out a little mimeograph mailer saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now formed this company and I will act as a negotiator and investment banker. And we had no idea what Joe's property was worth, but he put the price of a million bucks. So I went back to see Joe and got some numbers together, and I struggled with those because, again, I'm not an accountant. But I knew what cash flow was. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, Joe, what I'll do is I'll get you a million fifty thousand bucks, and you pay me fifty thousand bucks for getting you the money. And I'd met a guy named Charlie Sammons in Dallas. Oh yes. Who was in a dinner in Rapid City, South Dakota, that George Morrell put on. I was yeah. the speaker there. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Sammons sat next to me, and uh, he had written me when he got home and said, "I like that business. Bring me a deal." Well, I took it down to him. Uh, Max, and the figures were an 18 months payout on cash flow. So whatever 18 is into a million bucks, that's how much the cash flow was per month in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Well, Salmon's, having been around the business world for years, you know, you usually buy a company on five to ten times earnings. Or today it's ten times cash flow, but what I didn't realize, Salmon's did. He said, here's a hell of a business. It'll pay out in 18 months, and even if the business goes to hell and there's some kind of a wave that brings television over the mountainside or the FCC puts them out of business, I have minimal risk. So the first deal I made was with Mr. Sammons because he was smart enough to see this is a hell of a business. Where did you, uh, how did you know him or where did you find him? Uh, spoke at a meeting in Rapid City and he was sitting on my ah, left. I see. In a and he heard me talking about the business. Ah, yeah. And he picked up on it. And I sold several properties to him. And his problem was he didn't know how to management. So I said, well, hell, I've got a management company, which I didn't have, but I formed mentally that minute. <laughs> and uh, he knows this. I've told him yeah, yeah. about it many times. I said, we'll buy him. Uh, I'll manage the company. You pay the expenses. Let me have a little bit of the equity. He did 20% of the equity. And I earned that out, and that's how I really kind of got my equities going. Because right. in those days, I could find people to buy properties, but there weren't guys around to manage them. Mm -hmm. And I saw an opportunity to form a quote management company. Okay. So he was the first. Yeah, he was the first, and he's still alive, by the way. And Salmon's is a big operator today in yes. the cable business. He yes. loves the business. Mm -hmm. Then we started to have more demand for properties, and as we got a demand, the prices obviously went up because free enterprise system again. Supply and demand. They got the, you know, two times cash flow. Well, that was still a hell of a buy, but I was too stupid to realize what a good buy it was, and my job was to get maximum price for the seller. I was trying to do my best, but it was just, I wasn't educated there. Well, gradually, uh, the broad broadcasters came in. The first one was Leonard Wrench. From Cox? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sal called me one day and said, Bill, I want you to meet a friend of mine. We're going to be at Scottsdale at some kind of a broadcasters meeting. And I met with Sal Tayshoff and Leonard Wrench in the coffee shop of the Mountain Shadows Hotel. This was in 1965. That'd be about right. And Fred was the president, and it was at that meeting that I delivered, forgive me for the personal reference, but at the point of time, that I delivered the first paper on the legal background of how the commission got into it. And I have a copy of it right here. Right. And when, they appear, when Fred appeared before the House Committee, uh, the old man who was the chairman had him put it in the record because it was the first time that anybody had ever tried to trace how the hell the FCC got into cable. And it was rainy, I'll never forget it, because I got sick as hell that day. 
But anyway, so go on. Well, so Leonard was there at that meeting. Leonard was there. Right. Saul made the introduction, God I remember him, yeah. And I thanked Saul many times for it over the years. But Leonard was a very aggressive communicator. He not only was in the broadcaster, he was part of a newspaper publishing empire, radio, television, anything that had to do with communication. Cox Communications. You bet. Leonard was interested. Right. And he was the first broadcaster. And I sold him the cable system in Aberdeen, Washington. Hmm. Now, was it on his own own or for Cox? For Cox. For Cox. Yeah. Uh, Leonard was also the treasurer of the, the Democratic National Committee, mm -hmm. wasn't he? Sure. So, all right. But as a result of that, see, uh, Leonard, when about that time, we were selling cable properties for about three times cash flow. Well, that still was a hell of a buy, but I didn't realize, but Leonard knew, <laughs> because he'd been buying broadcast stations. And he figured, my God, I'm paying six and seven times in those days for a broadcast operation, and I could buy these for three times. That's a hell of a return on equity. So he bought that one, and he had no management, so we ran that for him. And uh, how big a system was it? Oh, twelve thousand, fifteen thousand subscribers. But he, we ran long enough so he'd get those monthly cash flow statements, and he knew what was going on. So he invited me into Canton, uh, Dayton. Ohio, to a luncheon which he put on and had Jim Cox and Leonard there, and Jim was his boss. And I put on a very informal seminar on where I thought cable TV was going and why. And at that luncheon, Jim Cox made the commitment to go much heavier into cable TV, and that's how Cox got started. Mm -hmm. The important thing is, Max, is that when other broadcasters with Leonard's fine reputation saw what Leonard was doing, it got their attention. And then I started getting more and more broadcasters in the business. The next one was George Storr. Ah, uh, yeah. George came in about that time. Mm -hmm. Following right. Leonard. Leonard was the first. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time, there were several small broadcasters around the country that were building cable systems in their own towns, but didn't amount to much. But they they could see where they could make money on their TV station plus importing others and you know later they ruled they couldn't own yes. one at the same yes. time but yes. George Storr came in uh, god damn I'm reaching way back now uh, well those are my first two broadcasters mm -hmm. then Irving Kahn called me one day he called me no he didn't call me I'm no, his man his man I read somewhere. What? What? What was his man's name who came in to look at this? Monty Rifkin. Yeah, Mon Monty Rifkin, right. Yeah. But I called on Irving New York because I'm a big fight fan and I'm teleprompters and producing the fights and putting them in theaters. Mm -hmm. And I thought what would really make sense is for teleprompter to produce fights and put them on cable systems and let him pay him money and we'd have a conditional draw for programming. So I went to see Irving. And I had to cut two properties to show him, Silver City, New Mexico, and Rawlins, Wyoming, which is one of our properties. Mm -hmm. And I went over the numbers. He didn't understand the numbers. He assigned Monty to the numbers. And Monty came out and looked at the properties and uh, went back. And I know the story now. I said, Irving, this has got to be a hell of a business because it pays out in three years, mm -hmm. you know. 
It's a hell of a deal, and, and uh, Irving, from that day on, was bullish on cable TV. Right. And I sold a lot of properties over the years. And uh, I wondered, I often just uh, digress, you know, I've known Irving for many years. Right. I wondered, how the hell did Tem Teleprompter get to Silver City, New Mexico? What were they doing there? They didn't have any money. Well, no, but then I see now how they got there. They didn't have any money. It was a small enough deal that he could finance it. Right. He had enough money laying around that he could buy that deal and work with it and until uh, he learned something about the business. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, the end of that story is that's today the Group oh, yeah. W $2.2 billion sale yeah. you know, to the consortium. I'm trying to think one of the broadcasts at the time. God, I talked to all of them, Max, all over the country. Jesus Christ. Uh, trying to convince them that they're in the communications business. Here's another exactly. arm of communication. Exactly. Uh, store, Leonard Ranch. Gee, if I looked at my list, I could tell you. Did also, uh, on, the, on the West Coast, uh, the uh, McClatchy people, did they get into it early? Uh, they waited a long time. Yeah, I, I talked to them earlier, but they waited. They drug their feet for a long time. Uh, people from uh, New Orleans. Uh, well, the Albert, Maison Blanche people, did they get into no, it? Uh, Albert Stern did, who uh, Al Stern. with NBC. Yeah. Got him in the business. Uh, uh, then I went to work on the newspapers because, again, they were in the communications mm -hmm. business. I guess a fair statement that uh, I talked to all the major broadcasting, including the three networks. Had a uh, deal with ABC once to buy all of Freddie Lieberman's stuff, and they mm -hmm. hired Marty Malarkey as a consultant. Yeah. And we were going to close the deal in a hotel in Philadelphia, and one of the board members of ABC didn't like something about cable, and it blew the deal. ABC would have made a hell of a deal if oh, they sure. got on with it. Uh, I talked to CBS. They finally got in the business, and Viacom, as a result of that, mm -hmm because that's a spinoff from CBS. NBC, I couldn't ever get to Bobby Sarnoff, Jr., but I talked to his dad, David. The old man, the general? Mm -hmm. I loved him because he was a guy of vision. Oh, this was one of the, I mean, he, General Sarnoff was communication. He, he could see, I remember him saying, young man, he said, if you can solve your political problems, he said, I think this is very exciting because he picked right away audio and video into the home. And then he said, if you can ever get a two-way, you've really got something. Well, we've got that today. Sure. And this was 25 years ago. Well, you know, the old man, he saw he saw FM coming. He saw he saw color-compatible color coming. He made the industry wait till the war was over. You remember that whole story. But I never could get an interview with Bobby. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even see me. But I think... This column. Yeah. Now, how did you get then? With getting the major investment houses involved, uh, how did that come about? Well, then I would find buyers for properties who were not as wealthy as Cox, not mm -hmm. as wealthy as Shore, the others who wanted to buy properties but didn't have the financing to do it. Then my job as an investment banker was to find banks mm -hmm. and the bigger banks who believed in the business. How'd you go about that? Went to New York. <laughs> first bank I talked to was a bank in New York, and they were the first lender 
in the cable TV business. Who they turned that? out to be the worst in later years, but they were the, one of the first banks Who is that? to go along with the Bank of New York. Oh, the Bank of New York. Yeah. And the reason they were is they were Salmon's banker. Ah, so that was the connection. And my job was to sell Salmon's banker and show them cash flow figures mm -hmm. and why it was a hell of a business. Now, we have been, Max, and we still have today, fast write-offs because technically the business changes so quick. So yeah. while you buy a building today and it's 20 years depreciation, we get five to eight years, mm -hmm. and we have had steadily. Our business has been a cash flow business since the day one, and that means that we paid no taxes because we're continually replacing equipment. But it was also high cash flow so we could service a lot of debt. Well, bankers love that. I was gonna, that's their language. You bet. And today, even, one of the reasons why we have lenders standing in line in our business is we're a cash flow business and not an earnings business. Mm -hmm. We don't pay dividends. If you own any stock and cable, you see the value in the stock rise, but you're not seeing any dividends to speak of. Because mm -hmm. we're thinking about cash flow and buying more properties, building more plant, and servicing our debt. So it's capital growth. We compete with the phone companies and the utility companies for, for capital. Right. But the banks love this and they love the high cash flow and that has never changed. From the, from the beginning. That's right. And uh, I went from there to the insurance company and they loved it because who, we could service their debt. Who were some of the leading companies that got into Travelers, Travelers Insurance Allstate. John Hancock, Equitable, and Teachers. And they, they, that was the language that you used, in effect, mm -hmm. with them. Ability to service debt. Mm -hmm. And insurance companies, they lend you a considerable amount of money, yet they get warrants at the end, and they want a little equity on the deal, which we give them. And looking back on it, they all did extremely well. And they have, we have never in our industry had one a financial institution lose a dime on a loan to the cable TV industry until the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been loans in trouble with banks, yeah. but they've always worked their way out of them and they've gotten their money back. The last two years to 36 months, because of the dynamic growth of business, there have been some loans in trouble. But the percentage of losses in the cable TV industry on bad loans is far below other the national average mm -hmm. of other kinds of businesses. Yeah. Up until two, three years ago, we had a perfect record, and that's unheard of. Well, you had you had you know you had a recession uh, three years ago, two, three years ago. We had you know the economy went to uh, the situation of you're trying to. Uh, trying to interest the uh, networks. You mentioned some things, uh, but I'll get to that later. I want to finish up with the financial investment houses. So if you would, Bill, continuing then, that was the way, in effect, you were able to interest the various financial houses, the insurance companies, in terms of the criteria that they understood in investment. Sure. Terms. And we went through three layers. In the early mount, in the early days of my dealing with the banks, investment bankers, 
the principals in the company had to personally guarantee the loans. Now, that leaves very little risk to the bank. Mm -hmm. The next step, they agreed that they would lend money from three to five years without personal endorsement on the loan. And then it grew from then from to five to seven years, banks would, uh, which were pretty long term for banks then. Uh, five to seven year loan? Five to seven year loan, sure. And today now, the, the normal bank loan uh, uh, is 10 years, interest only for a couple of years. Almost any kind of terms you want to work out with them. They got the first mortgage on the property. The cash flow is high and everything is rosy today. Uh, but the early days was convincing them that some kind of an invention wasn't going to put us out of business overnight. That was their concern, huh? Uh, yes, and I think you see some of that today. And I think it's, it's you know, today is a DBS going to put us out of business. Oh, yeah. Is this yeah, going to satellites put us out and so on. Satellites. Uh, mm -hmm. But what has happened is uh, we're so firmly entrenched now that that really doesn't concern any bankers. They know there are going to be other ways to get television into the home other than cable and broadcast, uh, such as DBS, such as satellite directly to the home, such as the, the, the development of VCRs. But after all, we're in 60% of the homes now and growing right. at the rate of about 500,000 a month. So our foothold is strong enough, so we really, we're, we're in great shape with financial institutions, but it wasn't that way in the early days. No, no, I'm sorry. go ahead. Okay. You're just a tough sale, yeah. you know. At that time also, uh, you mentioned, for example, uh, earlier that, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the early guys talked about uh, two-way interactive cable. Later came out of Bartlesville. Uh, when you went to the financial institutions, was there any... Uh, effort on your part or, you know, people that were in your situation or and or interest on their part in terms of the technology, the future technology. That is to say, uh, you know, cable television is a reception. It's cable television. But like long ago, as you mentioned earlier, when even Fred Ford in the 64, 66 and so on, we try to persuade and I was glad that you saw it that you shouldn't call it cable television, you should call it cable communications, right? Yeah. Were they interested in the future technological development or were they interested strictly in the financial aspect? Yes. Strictly in the financial aspect because those things that you mentioned, Max, are what we've called blue sky for years, but they slowly are developing. Right. Uh, they're here now Absolutely. and we can do all these yes. things technically and uh, those things are going to happen. Uh, but no, they were interested in what's the cash flow now, let me see a balance sheet, uh, how fast do you think you can make this thing grow. Future technology did not interest them one bit, uh -huh. because that was what they call lip service, and that was blue sky, and it was bullshit, and uh, they weren't interested. We all knew in the back of our minds it had to happen mm -hmm. if we didn't get blown out of the tub with some kind of crazy invention, and yeah. uh, that never happened. Thank God. And finally, on the current issues, uh, cable advertising, uh, how has it grown? Where is it now? Where do you think it's going? Matt, it's going to be unbelievable. Uh, I have long said that we aren't, aren't going to believe how much income our industry has and how much profits it 
going to become from 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 advertising. And uh, even having said that for six or eight years, I still say it's going to be unbelievable what happens. We have we have sadly underestimated what an important source of income it is for the cable operator, both as local, regional, and national. Uh, let me tell you what's going to happen. I don't know that I'll be here to see it. I hope I am. But cable operators are going to be treated one day just like local affiliates. And when uh, USA Network and ESPM and Ted Turner and the rest of them start getting large amounts of money, part of that money is going to be distributed to the local cable operator, just like it is to a local TV station today. That's going to be found money for us. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. It's hasn't been important now because we've been too busy with other things. Yeah. But one of these days, the big operators, or John Malone or somebody, is going to say to Ted Turner, look, Ted, we've been carrying these programs a long time. And I don't mind paying you X amount of money per month. But Ted Turner agreed early in the game, if he ever got to where the advertising would pay, he would start to drop the cable monthly charge. I don't see that happening because that just never happens in business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I do see the day when he's going to cut up his revenue, as are other programs suppliers with a local operator. What? I'm sorry. I just I think it's going to be fantastic, really. What uh, effect do you think that would have uh, on the on the on the distribution of uh, programming to the customer? Do you think there'll be any adverse reaction by the customer because he's paying for a service? Max, it depends on how we handle it. Right. We can get by with it on basic today. We're doing it today on basic. Right, yeah. And all our properties today, we're doing with income is substantial. Not near what it's going to be. And the public is uh, not... Uh, no problem at all. Now, when you get into pay, the pay channels, yeah. that's another story. Now, what I can see happening is if we, our industry, handle it properly, and I predict this will come, uh, the best way I can do is give you an example. Let's take an HBO movie. At the beginning of the movie, three to four nicely done spots, commercials, and intermission, which, believe it or not, a lot of people would like to have during a movie. Pitch for various stop. reasons. Pitch yeah, stop. Pitch stop. <laughs> and uh, intermission, and then hit it with uh, four to five commercials, and then the end. I don't think the public would mind that one damn bit. So, in other words, it'll take on the same uh, facade like... Uh, some of the better broadcasting uh, uh, outfits are doing now. Yeah. Not interrupting the continuity. Yeah. In, in pay now. Right. I think in, in our basic, we can get by with advertising just the way they do in a normal broadcast station. Mm -hmm. But in pay, I don't think we can. I don't think we should. Okay. I think, once again, the public, Main Street, would raise so much hell yeah. that if we, if we abused it, we'd back off. Yeah. Well, can, the public controls what we do. Or otherwise, it'd be suicidal. Sure. Don't lose your customers. Good. That, gee, that, that's great. All right. Now, uh, going on to uh, the, the new subject, that is to say your views on the future role of cable in the development of telecommunications as, you know, a telecommunications service rather than just cable. Uh, what do you view as to the future range of uh, cable services, for example? In the entertainment field, you've already covered that, so 
But in the non-entertainment field, you and I talked in the first session about, I remember you were saying, uh, I think we ended the session by your saying, GMAX, I'd love to be here 50 years from now and see what the future course of this whole telecommunications industry is going to be. Sure. And you and I made a pact that we would be here. But more specifically now, uh, do you see cable communications having a role in informational services, in educational services, civic affairs, things of that kind? What types of non-entertainment service do you see as a technology? Yeah, Max, I absolutely do. Now, there we get into uh, what we call for your blue sky. Mm -hmm. For 25 years, I have believed in blue sky. For 15 of those 25 years, I have been wrong on when it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. A lot of it would be there today had we not been held up by our various enemies over the last 30 years. I see the following happening. Uh, a cable subscriber, because of our two-way capability now, therein lies the key. The addressability. Addressability and two-way. The telephone company has one-way communication into the home, right. and they have only audio. We have two-way capability, audio and video. You, in addition to the normal things we've talked about in the past, that's banking from the home, that's going to come. We've uh, fumbled the ball. We haven't done it right. It's been tried. They've dropped it. A lot of the telex projects have been tried. They've been dropped, but it's coming. Is that the video called video text? And yeah, video right. text. Yeah, and there were a lot of people lose a lot of money at because they're worried. Right. Uh, but that's got to happen. It's supply and demand. A picture, if you will, that if you have a home computer, it would be connected to a master computer at the cable TV office where you could in three seconds, find the answer to anything you wanted answered. Information retrieval. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. That is really going to help home computers, too. Now, don't ask me how that's going to be done, because I'm not smart enough to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But it just makes sense. <coughs> would, would it would key into some of the data banks you're saying that they of have course. now? Sure. And it saves, think of the software, it saves the computer owner when he, all he's got to do is go to the bank and get it mm -hmm. this, this quick. That'll, you'll see that happen. Uh, the meter reading that we've talked about in the past, that's going to happen. And God knows what else, and that's why I want to come back in 50 years, because once again, we've got that audio and video capability into the home two-way. Now, that's mind-boggling. Do that you, is mind-boggling. Do you perceive, Bill, that uh, technically this could also be tied into a, to a mobile communication service through, say, the head end? Absolutely. In, uh, in what manner do you think that uh, other, service, other types of services could be rendered to the public? Would it be paging-like or mobile radio or... Electronics is moving so fast. Uh, God only knows what's going to happen, but picture this also, Max. Uh, you know, the phone company has never been made a success with the picture phone. Mm -hmm. 
And this, I think you're going to see the day when the telephone companies are going to get together with cable operators and somehow that you're going to be looking very easy if you look at the person you're talking to by a combination of the bell, the bell systems of the bell company and cable TV system. We have that capability now. They do not. That can happen. Uh, if, if you, I guess the best way to demonstrate this is to, is to tell you what's going on in the paging business. Did we talk about that? Uh, only a little at the very end. Okay. We, we know I'm very high in the paging business today, and I'm almost as excited about it as I was the cable TV business years ago. But the day is coming, the engineers tell me, when you can talk to anybody in the world from your wristwatch. And I don't know how to compare it, Max, but if you can do that with the paging business and what we have in place in our communication system, it's just unlimited what the possibilities are. And they're so... It's a mind-boggling hour to know what to, how to tell you about them. But the plant is there, the facility is there, and uh, scientists, research and development, and the free enterprise system is going to develop more services. And right now, they're, of course, even now, using the satellites for uh, paging. Oh, sure. So, sure. But, did, but there, would, would there be a tie-in to, uh, to cable as such, or, or would it just be an expansion of a general telecommunications service. Expansion, and you know, that at Penn State, that's one of the things they want to do there. They want to teach a course, have a course, and they're calling it something like telecommunications, yeah, where, you breed, right. yeah, where you breed computers with satellites, with cable, uh, with DBS, uh, with paging, mm -hmm. uh, with worldwide communications, and see how do we mold all this together so we have the best of all worlds. And it would truly become a telecommunications complex. Sure. In which uh, various segments and facets of the industry would have a role dependent upon their technology. Another reason I want to come back in 50 years. Right. We still have a date. Sure. Uh, we already referred to some of this. I take it uh, your view that there may, well, put it this way, do you also foresee in terms of the future range of CATV services, uh, an expansion of program origination by cable yes. operators. No question. Uh, we've got to do it. Uh, and we've got to be as innovative in the cable business as the three networks have been, uh, as the independent producers have been. We've got to do the same thing. Max, you're going to see the day that all NFL football is on cable. Mm. Not on networks. On cable. You heard me right. It's all going to be on cable. And uh, it's going to uh, be on basic, in my opinion, for about three to four years. And then overnight, bang, during that three to four year period, we'll be gearing up for pay-per-view. Not enough of us are now. And then when the time is right, we'll flip the switch. And uh, NFL football will go to pay-per-view, including the playoffs and the Super Bowl. Following that will be NBA will fall right behind, and baseball. All of your sports will be on cable. 
Now why? We have a method of collecting by adding to the basic fee for, for a package. There are 50 million approximately cable TV homes in the country today. And if we just charge an additional $2 a month on basics, that's I think $10 billion a year. Uh, the, the current NFL contract pays the NFL $400 million bucks a year. Hmm. And the networks are not going to pay them anymore. If you read the same things I do, you yes. know that. Yes. <coughs> and the reason it's going to happen is because the reason it's going to happen is that the price of the athletes is going up, uh, the stadiums are about as large as they're going to get, uh, sports have got to have some additional revenue, and they're not going to get it from the broadcasters. Uh, following football, it's, you're going to see the other sports fall in line, and we have the ideal theater in the home for sports. And the networks will survive with survive without sports, but that's going to happen. You can just write that down in your book. You just reached over into the very next subject, but that is the future growth of CATV. What uh, you know? What do you perceive? The current now, you say there's now what 50 million homes subscribers to CATV. What do you see as to the penetration in the, say the 1990s to the year 2000? Well, it's going to be unbelievable if you let's just assume for a minute that we had all the NFL football on basic. Yeah. Uh, the percentage of penetration within 12 months would go up 20% all over the country. Mm -hmm. But how about the cable operator would have to carry it or he'd be shot. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, yeah. That's sports. But yeah. not, now, 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 just addressing the generic question of the penetration by CATV as a whole. Yes. Where do you see that going in well, the 1990s? I just gave you a bang, 20% because yeah. of the NFL games. Then you start to add the other sports, sports they're going to follow in. We're just changing. Give me that figure again. I just changed uh, the... 50 million homes. They've all got to take the programming. The 20 bucks a year approximately added to their bill is a billion dollars. Okay. In yeah. addition to that, in addition to that, uh, be about another $250 million income in advertising. So that's $1,250,000,000 million a year. In terms of revenue. So we pay the NFL $500 million and the balance goes to expense and cut up among the cable operators and so forth. It's very simple. It's not that complicated. So are you, are you saying that you think that uh, the uh, enchantment, if I can say it, of the American public which isn't distinction, uh, distinctive to the American public, with sports will actually be the driving force for this uh, expansion and penetration? Yeah, and, it, and that's, that's a start. And uh, because sports, it's been proven, I think, is the best pay-per-view vehicle we have. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been some movies done pretty well, but the big thing is since day one, Max, since the old teleprompter days and Irving Kahn putting on the fights, yeah. That was pay-per-view, but that was in theaters. Right. But the people went out to see it. NFL, uh, the Super Bowl last year, was the most watched program of all time in the history of television. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Now, the public, it wouldn't take long to get them used to it. 
The Congress doesn't concern me. Uh, they have considered the Super Bowl and the World Series to be untouchable. Baloney. Free enterprise and dollars will call that shot and not the Congress. Okay? And uh, when you get a combination of the, of the club owners in any sport and the cable operators going to Congress and convince them this is the only way we continue it, the Congress isn't going to give them any problem. The public wants the event. even if the, They'd rather have the event and pay for it than not have the event. Mm-hmm. And that's the only choice they've got with prices rising in sports franchises, okay? So so you don't see that uh, this particular thing, as I say, sports, what you're concentrating on, would have any uh, deleterious effect on cable's uh, image, uh, public image that they talk not about? Not at so all. Much. It makes them overnight the choice network. Ah. The way to get television. Yeah. Like Absolutely. the old days. Sure. It's, it's exciting. You know, uh, the the NFL, I've dealt with them. I know them. They've been very pompous. Uh, I can tell you even today that uh, they're going to go any place they can to replace the revenue they're going to lose from the network. Hmm. And that's cable. Yeah. Now, that leads into what's going to happen in pay-per-view. Uh, sports is going to be the most thing, thing about it, not movies. But picture a combination of professional sports now on the networks and uh, some of Ted Turner's MGM films and other blockbusters. They'll end up on cable. And uh, it's just a beautiful situation for the cable industry to be in today. We couldn't do it if we weren't up to about, you know, 48, 40, 50 million homes. Now we've got the numbers. Right. And further expansion, not only in, in the uh, outlying areas, but in the uh, major cities as well. Sure, and we, we scramble the signal on all these events, so even the rancher has to pay to watch the NFL ballgame. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, going on to another subject, uh, in terms of what your views are, Bill, as to the future makeup of the uh, industry, the CATV industry, do you see, for example, we now know that uh, entire new segments of, of industry and commerce are coming into the field. Uh, do you see that uh, there should be any limits on, on uh, multiple ownership of CATV systems? I don't see that. I see 25 major owners, MSOs. Mm-hmm. It could be 15, 20, 25, between 15 and 25 MSOs. That's happening today, Max. There are 100 now, and you're seeing mergers and acquisitions, and it's it's starting to happen. And I've known this for 10 years. I mm-hmm. predicted that. You can go back and check the record there. But uh, it's the perfect business for absentee ownership. It's a perfect business for for multiple ownership. Uh, and uh, the government is never going to let happen to them what happened in the case of the Bell, AT&T. And, you know, we've had cases already in our industry when big companies have tried to merge in cable business, and the Justice Department has put a squabosh on it. AT, uh, ATC tried to merge with Cox, and, and the Justice Department said, forget it. Yeah. So they backed off. But that you'll find the bigger companies picking up the smaller operators, okay? And uh, you're going to see uh, the media concentrated among 15 corporations. Mm-hmm. Do you do you see 
do you think that's good or, or, or limits uh, should be? In other words, do you think that uh, all holds, about, uh, you know, that there's no, there's no reason to put any limits on it? Or do you think, as you kind of indicated, that when the situation gets a little too big, then something ought to be looked at? Max, it depends on how we as an industry conduct ourselves. Right. If the multiple system operators, as they grow and get bigger, and as they buy the smaller companies, if they conduct themselves properly, if they make the same contribution to the community that the local owner did, mm -hmm. that there shouldn't be a problem. Uh, I don't see anything to get disturbed about until such time. As there's a reason to be disturbed. You know, you hell, you got three networks now. Mm -hmm. They've had a monopoly for years and years and years, and they've years. done a damn good job. Fifty years. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And they only have three competing networks. And you got to remember that we don't really compete in other against anymore. When ATC and Cox won the merge, that was during the franchise battles. Yeah. And the Justice Department wanted to see a couple big shooters out there in the cities competing. Right. We no longer compete with each other because we we occupy a monopoly, so to speak, in any one market. So the, the, you don't have the same problem that you do uh, during the franchise battle. Mm -hmm. Do you you know same same in the same vein? Uh, what what do you think about uh, what's going on? Has been for some years, as you've indicated, uh, the cross ownership with other elements of the telecommunications industry, like you know the broadcasters, the networks, newspapers, uh, the telephone companies. Yeah, I've always what thought that. that? I've always thought that made sense, Max. Yeah, yeah, because if it didn't, because of the political muscle today, the. TV station owner would own the cable system in every town in the country, and that's when I'll put communications, and that would have slowed down the growth mm -hmm. of cable, because, you know, if you own an affiliate in New York City, CBS affiliate, you're not going to be crazy about bringing a lot of channels to compete against yourself. No, no way. So I think the commission did a very smart move in the cross-ownership deal, and that's allowed the public to benefit. Right. The public is benefited by that. In other words, new elements have come in in the cable industry other than existing broadcasters and so oh, on. Sure. Max, the, the, grip, the best example there is in my home city of Denver. Prior to the cable TV system being built here, not one of the systems was on all night long. Cable stations was on all night long. Now, you heard me say this in Washington. Yes, yeah, right. There was a few exceptions on a Saturday night. They just, one of them might stand all night long, or maybe two of them. Today, in your major markets, most of your TV stations operate 24 hours a day. Why? Cable competition. Right. We have made the local TV station better, and therefore the public is benefiting. Which is the old competitive of course. from the very start. Sure. Uh, do you do you see this to be solely a reason of uh, the current trend in deregulation, or is it something that would have happened anyway because of the nature of the beast? The it would have happened anyway, Max, but it would have taken another twenty-five years for it to happen. Huh. Deregulation accelerated. It. Accelerated. Uh, and, and the entry of the... Uh, because the public would have demanded it. Yeah. And they call the shot. Let us never forget 
the public calls the shot. Now, how how do you see how do you see the entry of say strictly uh, I want to call them I'll say it without meaning any uh, libelous <laughs> implication the the financial speculators who have come in to buy up you know big systems uh, and you referred to it before and have referred to it many times that they are not the public oriented people that the, the old cable people are, have been, the old broadcasters have been, that have a sense of service to the public. What do you foresee, what's your view on the entry of these strictly financial speculators coming well, in with a leverage buyout yeah. and stuff like Max, that? Max, we've had to have them. The reason we have is in our industry, we compete against the investment dollar with the phone companies and the power companies right. and so forth. There's just so much investment capital. We've had to have them outsiders come in, financial people, to grow. Mm -hmm. Now, those that are not publicly, public oriented now, and there are not many of them, most of them have got the message, are going to be because the public is going to force them to. They'll find out in a hurry. They're not in the business of just shuffling dollars around. They're in the business of serving their almighty, their almighty uh, audience. person. The customer, the, the public. Customer, the audience. Once again, right. the public controls what happens to you and I. Do you think that uh, if uh, things get, you know, to some degree of concern, that you remember there used to be a limit on. Uh, they were talking about a limit on the number of stations that could be owned. They were oh, sure. talking about the number of, of uh, you know, the three-year rule in broadcasting, sure. uh, and now, in fact. You read the trade press, because of these leverage buyouts and these turnovers quickly within a year, they're beginning, Quello is beginning to talk about uh, reinstating the three-year rule. Yeah. What do you think about it? Well, again, uh, the eighth one of the world is a free enterprise system, and the ninth one of the world is a few people understand it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And if it's abused by the quick turnover, the commission will get the message and they'll do something about it. You know, uh, if it's abused, they should do something about it. That's my point. Yeah, sure. I've got no problem with that. Right. That's why in the case of cable TV on January 1 of 1987, we're deregulated. Right. If we abuse it, we're going to get our ass kicked. It's that simple. If we conduct ourselves as gentlemen and we don't overdo it, and we don't mistreat the public, we'll be in great shape. But if we mistreat the public, we'll be right back under control again. And, and our industry's got to understand that, and I hope they do, and I say it all over the country. The 19, January 1, 1987 is the flag day for the Cable uh, Act sure. of 1984, the deregulation of rates, that's, that's and so it. on. The city council no longer has any control over what we do, rates or anything else. But what you're saying is, if I understand it, that that doesn't give you carte blanche. That doesn't give the cable operator carte blanche. In other words, he'd be a damn fool if he goes out and he gouges on January 2nd. You've got it, absolutely. And we've got to be very careful the way we handle that. You know. If you want to expand with the, with the public image that everybody wants. Sure, and you can't, you know, and you'd be foolish to price your product out of the out of the market, man. Right. You go broke if you do that. Yeah. So it's a fine line. It takes good business judgment. 
where do you think the guidance is going to come? Because that, that's going to be a very critical day, January 1, 1987. Yeah, well, the guidance is going to come when somebody around the country abuses it, okay, and every customer around the system writes the Federal Communications Commission or the congressman. That should give the message to the rest of the industry, hey, hold it, fellas, we're doing this too fast. Do you think the trade association should be trying to uh, well, they are. hold the reins sure. on, on some of their operators? They are, and you're seeing editorials on it in our trade papers, and you'll see it uh, in my newsletter. We've already talked about it. Uh, uh -huh. You've just got to be sensible in how you handle yourself. Uh -huh. You've got to prove that you don't need control. That's right. If we don't prove that we uh -huh. don't need control, we're going to have control back. In other words, what you're saying is your feeling, and it fits in with everything you've said, Bill, is self-regulation is really the best. Absolutely. Sure. And if you behave yourself as an industry, yeah. nobody's going to bother you. Yeah, now the NBA, NAB has been pretty successful on that. Yes. Max, if I remember their code of ethics, don't they have one in the NAB? They've well, every year. they have a code of ethics. And they pretty well live up to that, don't they? They do. And in fact, uh, uh, <laughs> the funny thing was, they had standards on uh, the number and frequency of commercials, and uh, it went on for 45 years. Yeah. Somebody, uh, the Justice Department, or who the hell ever it was, complained, and a court threw it out as being antitrust violation. <laughs> Would you believe it? Yeah. I mean, I... That's I a twist. I, they did. Yeah. And this is now some eight years ago or something like that. Yeah. They said that for a trade association to impose limits of that kind which means the amount of money that a station can, can earn is a violation of the antitrust laws. I never thought of it that way, did you? No. When you knew about it? Well, there you go. So, that's, that's good. Well, I get the message, and I think, uh, frankly, I think you're right. We'll, we'll see how it develops. Now, finally, uh, oh, I see, we already went over the uh, role of the CATV in the development of the technology, and so that's, that's good. Uh, as this thing is developing, you're uh, actually uh, anticipating what the course of this is going to be. Now, the final, and may we have already, the final thing uh, that I thought would be useful for us to talk about uh, in terms of that outline is the uh, present and future uh, role of the federal and or the local governments in the regulation of cable. And we've, we've touched on it a number of times. Uh, we've just talked, as a matter of fact, about uh, the effects of federal deregulation, the Cable Act. Let me sum up that, Max. Yeah. Because it comes out of that speech I told you guys tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to talk about plus things that I think are going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years and minus things. And this is going that, to be that, that place, uh, yeah. the Cable Television Public Affairs Association yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, the plus side is pay-per-view, obviously. Advertising is going to be tremendous. The NFL I told you about, another programming. And other, Irving Kahn has said that he thinks someday we're going to have more revenue in our industry from ancillary services than TV programming. I think we were talking about. Irving Kahn said, yeah, that we're talking I, said, about. We're I don't believe talking. that, but that's what Irving says. Yeah. Uh, but if we do... Non-entertainment services. Non-entertainment is going to be... Services are going to provide more revenue in our industry than entertainment. If you call sports entertainment, I can't, uh, I don't agree with Irving at all. The other plus side is, the, is 
the big building period is over and our cash flow is rapidly increasing in the cable TV industry. Our budgets for public relations, for research and development, for programming is increasing every month. And that's going to add a big positive plus in our industry for the future. For so many years, we've had to build plant. We haven't had the money. We've paid a lot of interest, if you follow me. Yeah. We've crossed over that now into the high cash flow in most properties, and we have the money to do a lot of things we didn't before. Mm -hmm. On the minus side, if we get cocky, and that's the best word I can think of, we're going to be right back to regulated again if we don't handle ourselves properly as an industry. And when you say properly, you mean? If we abuse the public, again, the public. Right. If we overcharge them, if we don't give them quality programming, if we abuse the public in any way, we're going to be regulated again just as quick as we got deregulated. Mm -hmm. But uh, the other downside is I'm surprised it hasn't happened sooner, but our industry has not been a public utility in the number of states I thought we would be by now. That is to say, the state would have taken it over yeah. as a public utility. Yeah, Max, we're a public utility today in Vermont, in Nevada, in Alaska, and there's one other state. What is it? There are four states. And uh, we don't want that because they control your return on your investment. The worst that could be is if we ever end up a public utility, and I don't see that happening, but if we do, there ain't nothing wrong with the utility business. Hmm. Because with being a utility, you get a whole lot of protection. For sure. Greater return and the rest. Yeah, guarantees your monopoly. <clears throat> yeah. I would rather operate in the format of free enterprise and be deregulated and let us do a lot of things and experiment uh, and make whatever money we can by being businessmen. Okay. Now I'm ready for that point. Well, you've, you've, covered, you've covered a good part of it already. Again, uh, anticipatory. Uh, so, for example, I was going to ask about the effects of federal deregulation, and you've indicated what you think, that there may be some rise in rates, but that you would caution the industry to go slowly, be just treat the public the way they should be treated. That's right. your... Yeah, Max, and I even, I even warned myself, we operate a, a number of cable systems in yeah. addition to our investment banking, and uh, we're going to be awful careful in this shop the way we handle our customers mm -hmm. through this, uh, because I'm well aware that if we get out of control, we'll be right back where we were. Now, in terms of uh, future franchising policies, do you see uh, the federal government's role expanding or decreasing? It'll expand if we abuse it. Right. So if that's the key. That's, that's the, the key. key. Right. Would the same be true in the state and local governments? Absolutely. And Max, a cable operator that does not provide good service to the consumer and abuses the public should not have his franchise renewed. Mm -hmm. And I've said that for 20 years. Mm -hmm. They don't deserve to have their franchise renewed. There was a day when we had a lot of cheap and dirty cable operators who milked the property, yeah. 
they wouldn't aggressively try to buy more services and the quality of service and so forth for their customers. And they didn't deserve <laughs> to have their franchise renewed. In, 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 in that same vein, in terms of uh, the problems of franchise renewal, particularly in the era we're approaching on the Cable Act deregulation, uh, what are your views, what has been your experience, what has been your practice in terms of cooperating with the local uh, municipality? We can't do enough for them in our property. Can't do enough? We can't do enough in way of cooperation. In, in, in what areas? Give oh, me an example. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, volunteering. Uh, uh, Jones Intercable, a competitor of mine, but a damn good one, is sponsoring the Junior Olympics in a lot of their communities. Mm -hmm. It's a PR coup, in my opinion. Uh, your people being active in civic clubs. Uh, anytime the city has a problem, uh, helping them do the same as broadcasters have done for 50 years. Right, right. right. Uh, getting the word out to the public, let them know what's going on in the community. Uh, know the city council on a first time, on a first name basis. Be part of the community. If you do that, you'll have no problems, providing you provide the customer good service at a reasonable price. You know, and would it be true then to say, or would would, would be your opinion that that cable is another service, which not only is being afforded to the public but as part of the entire, uh, what shall I say, civic activity complex. That Absolutely. is to say, it's part of the community. Absolutely. And as such, you would want to not only cooperate with the civic organizations, but with the local authorities. Sure. You know, we're doing a lot of that now. We're televising city council meetings. We've well, done, we've here done in Denver? It. Yes. Well, not, not in Denver. Uh, yeah, we just started, pardon me, five months ago. Yeah. Uh, we volunteer to do that. We shouldn't be told to do it by the city council. We should offer it. Mm -hmm. the, the sad thing about it is nobody watches it, yeah. but they're on television. Right, right. And uh, it's a way for the public to be part of their government. Now, that's a real public service. And we're fighting access channels. We should volunteer that. We shouldn't be made to do right. that. Yeah. Uh, and as our cash flow increases, we should do more things for the cities that we operate in. So it is actually like it used to be, you know, when I was with Bartley years ago, uh, you remember Commissioner Bartley? Sure. Uh, he was, you know, basically a Texan populist, and he believed about the importance of the broadcaster being a part of the community. And I remember when Cable came along, and we refer back to when Fred Ford was president, I knew he was of the same view, and I knew you were, and a lot of Bill Chap and the old timers that it's just another form of service to the community. Sure, Mac. You know, the logs that the broadcasters submitted to the FCC, I don't know whether they still have to do that or not, no. but a certain percentage of <coughs> their time was required to be public service. Right. We shouldn't be made to do that. We should just do that automatically. Right. Well, uh, that, uh, that completes uh, the uh, outline section of what it was I wanted to discuss with you today. Uh, what, what, uh, some kind of overview of, of course, you've given us and the predictions of uh, the future role and, and your overall assessment of what it's going to be like. Uh, are there any other words of wisdom that uh, you think will, you would be imparting uh, in this whole situation? Because this is going to be very valuable. Yeah. 
I wish in the cable TV business that all cable operators were more sensitive to public relations, being part of the community, and doing things what I'm known for saying, first life, because mm -hmm. it really pays off. And I wish that every cable operator in the country was as good as Leonard Ranch and Cox Broadcasting was in the mm -hmm. broadcasting business. What are you telling us about? And Shore Broadcasting. Now, I know them all. And I can tell you that George Storr, everything George Storr did was first class all the way. First class plus. Mm -hmm. And the same applied to Leonard Branch and Cox Broadcasting. And it really paid off. There are schlocky broadcasters in the broadcasting business. And there are schlocky operators in the cable business. And unfortunately, one schlocky broadcaster can hurt the entire industry in the same in the cable business. The best example I can give you, and it's a sad story, is what Irving Kahn was found guilty of in the case of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And we had to live with that for about a period of five years. I remember it very well. Where every time that we would go before city council, people just assumed that our industry was paying off city councilmen. Mac, that was very rare. Oh, I remember that. Very, very rare. And I happen to admire Irving Kahn today. He's one of my best friends. Was he guilty? Under our court system, he was. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. But I just wish, and I hope the day comes when the cable industry really believes in putting back into a community what they take out of it. We take a lot of money out of the communities in the country today, Max. And we not only should put back in a better programming and better service, but being part of the community. Right. You know. Yeah. Making this country a better place to live in. That's right. There are a lot of things you do in business you don't make a quarter on. Mm -hmm. And we in our industry have not done the things that we're going to be able to do because we're starting to make the money. We ought to be building parks and donating to the city. Uh, we ought to be providing swimming pools, just voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Thank you, folks, for being so nice to our company, kind of a deal. Uh, scholarships for education. Broadcasters have done a lot of that. Not enough, in my opinion, but they've done a lot of it. Uh, we should be setting up foundations for, uh, for feeding the poor, for helping the, the unfortunate. Uh, and we're going to get there. Because that society is the society we live in today. And should that message not be spread to the whole industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and the trade association would probably be the vehicle to do it? People like yourself? Well, I preach it. Yeah, I'm that's what I mean. More than one, yeah, sure. You'll see more of that happening in the industry. I would guess. Well, one final thing. The, uh, oh, by the way, the word, the word is philanthropy. I didn't hear you, Max. I say, the word is philanthropy. It's interesting, the way you put it, because it harkens back to the old days of the Carnegie's, the Mellons, the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, who, when they took so much out of the community, 
decided the time had come to put it back. Sure, look at what the Ford Foundation, and yeah, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Mellon Foundation, all of these fine, fine foundations have contributed to our society. Right. We should do the same. And the industry, in your view, in other words, Bill, is, has matured or soon will mature to the point where now individually or as an industry should be doing the same for the community? Every year that goes by, we should do more. Right. Absolutely. Right. Wrapping up this two-part series, Bob Magnus. Driving two men whose pickup broke down back to Paducah, Texas, Oklahoma cottonseed buyer Bob Magnus was intrigued by their story of building a community antenna system. A week later, he went back to Paducah to talk further with them. Within a month, he and his wife Betsy sold everything, borrowed some additional money, and began stringing wire in nearby Memphis. By the mid-1960s, he and Betsy, along with several partners, built and bought up cable system that formed the nucleus of TCI, which eventually became the nation's largest cable operating company. Magnus passed away in 1996. Well, I want to get into those uh, other activities of yours in a little bit more detail later on, but we had gotten up to the point where uh, uh, you had said that you started getting interested in, uh, in cable. I guess in those days, both of us called it community antennas and right. instead of cables. But, uh, what, what was the occasion of your first learning about, uh, uh, let's call it CATV as a compromise? Well, I was at a, a cotton gin one evening, and, and two gentlemen came walking in, and they had, had lost a ride in the pickup down on the Four Sixes Ranch. And we were down kind of in the middle of nowhere where the pitchfork and the four sixes and the Wagner and the Matador all kind of comes together. And it was, you know, 30, 35 miles to a village from there. And uh, they were afoot, and I thought, you know, I've got a flat tire in my trunk, and I could be afoot too. So I took these guys back to Paducah, Texas, and stayed on the highway. And uh, so during the time we were going back, uh, they were talking about this new community antenna system they just put in their city, their town. And uh, so I listened and thought a little bit about it. And about a week later, thought I'd thought enough about it. I went down and looked them up and, and talked to them some more. And that about, was Paducah, Texas? Mm-hmm. And the gentlemen were, were very kind to help me and show me everything they were doing and told me where you buy these things and where you learn how to do this and so forth. And so uh, about 30 days later, we were stringing wire. That fast? Uh, we didn't know it'd last, it'd last as long as it has, you know. When I was young, we had a radio aerial, and some of the people called them community aerials, if you remember. And uh, they lasted, you know, three or four years, and and pretty soon radios got better and we didn't need those. And uh, so people didn't know that they wouldn't be having relay stations all over the country because they still established the policy for the commission up there, the broadcast policies at that time. So thought we'd better get in pretty fast and get our money back. Uh, when uh, you drove up to Paducah, Paducah and talked to these gentlemen, uh, 
and uh, you were married then, weren't you? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you went back home and uh, discussed it with Betsy, can you recall that conversation? Because uh, obviously this had to be a big family decision that was being made. It was a big family decision, and but she was wholeheartedly in favor of it. And uh, she didn't want to go back to the cotton farm anymore. And uh, so we had a little batch of cattle that we'd been gathering up for a few years. And we sold the cattle and, and went to the uh, bank and took that money and, and borrowed some from the bank, borrowed $2,500 from my dad. And, uh, and when we had our opening, Betsy used to say that, that I'd spent all the money we had and left her $267 in debt. But uh, we had a partner at that time because we just didn't have enough money to do it ourselves. So it was W.A. Simmons that was the superintendent's cotton oil mill where I worked. And he and I built the cable system. And that first cable system was where? Memphis, Texas. And uh, how did you get the franchise? Is there any interesting story about getting permission to build it? Well, we we uh, we had a it was a nice community, and part of the cotton oil mills business was was trade development in the area. So we had good reputations in the town. It was my job to see it. We did, and the mayor was a banker, and and uh, one of my hunting friends. And we went down. Dr. Gus Helm was his name, went down and talked to him, and he seemed to think that was all right. And then we had two competitors when they had the second reading, and Larry Boggs, that most everyone knows, was there from Beaumore. They had several systems around, and another gentleman from Tyler, Texas, and they came up and made real grandiose uh, uh, appeals and told all about it, and and uh, so uh, we sat back there not knowing too much about it. But when we got through, the council said, well, if, if Bob and Dub can't get this system built, we sure will come see you guys. So we had to deliver then, you know. So we went with Gerald. At that time, they had some engineering packages that you could buy. And they kind of showed us how, and we strung it on the poles. The, we had a little help and a little training, but the uh, Dub's uh, brother, actually his uh, brother-in-law, was working in the construction in in power. So he'd come on weekends and help us. And we had division office of General Telephone there and knew had some golfing friends that were district people, and they traded out their cable installations and helped us on weekends and, and uh, so uh, that worked for a few weekends and then we had to kind of finish it ourselves you know. But it does sound as if uh, rather than experiencing uh, a lot of antagonism uh, that it was a pretty cooperative endeavor in the community. Oh very cooperative. Uh, very cooperative and uh, everybody helped us to, to no end. The town had a pretty good uh, policy of drafting for your power bills and your country club bill and these things. And so we, we drafted our bills uh, 
till the first of the month, Betsy would take down drafts to one bank and drafts to the other bank, and we didn't even have to send bills out. She just made the deposits and had one one uh, person didn't have a bank account on the whole system. The rest of them were all handled by the draft system. And uh, did the, uh, or oh, would you spell the name of the uh, of the banker that you were referring to? It uh, won't be apparent to the transcriber on the case. Kate. His name was Buster Helm, H-E-L-M. And did they, uh, did the bank uh, help you with money for building the system? Helped us a little bit. They did help us. That's unusual for those early days, wasn't mm -hmm. it? It was, because they probably loaned the money to us, and, but we had some money to go with it. But they matched the money Dub and I were able to gather up. And uh, another thing about Buster, he, remember we had a microwave freeze about that time, and uh, wouldn't let us build a microwave, and we had an application in, and he went back as mayor, testified in Congress, and got the very first license after the freeze back in 1956. Well, I, I didn't realize that. I was well aware of the freeze, of course, mm -hmm. because, as you know, I was very active in the, as an attorney in the, in the microwave area. Right. Yeah. Um, how many uh, subscribers did you develop in that system? I think about 700, maybe 750. How big was the community? About 4,500 people. Well, that would mean that you had almost all of the homes there. Nearly right? all of them. Yeah. Was there any other, any off-the-air television? None at all. Uh, Hardly at all. And uh, do you recall what stations you received? We received uh, stations from Amarillo and Lubbock, Texas. Amarillo and Lubbock. Mm -hmm. uh, how many stations all together, do you recall? I believe... Uh, that we had, uh, I think we had six stations. The Lubbock stations weren't very good until we put a microwave system in. And we got that in, uh, oh, sometime, uh, uh, probably early 57, late 56. I could look back, I've still got that first set of books, but the... Uh, and when we got that in, we brought in then very good state quality from from Lubbock. Um, we were bringing signals for about 80 miles out of Amarillo over some very rough terrain and about 140 miles from Lubbock with a 440-foot tower. That was the question I was going to ask you. Uh, and how, lot, how did you get up there to get the signals? And lots of antennas. You don't by any chance have any photographs of that uh, original installation, do you? Might have. If you, uh, if you happen to have one that uh, you can give up out of your memory files, uh, uh, we would certainly like to... Uh, I'll go through them. Just, I'll go through them here. Just wondering and uh, going to do that anyway about some other things. So I'll see if I can pick out something. We would appreciate that. Uh, and... Uh, what came next, as far as cable was concerned, after uh, Memphis? Well, we ran Memphis for a, a period of time, and and uh, I moved on into uh, Plainview, Texas, 
we closed the Anderson Clayton closed the mill down in in Memphis, and because the cotton business was in a consolidating state at that time, and there were some 411 cotton oil mills, and last time I looked, there were about 75. So they were going toward bigger mills and longer season crushes. And uh, so my business was up on Caprock, and and uh, we were uh, we put the microwave in. It was very good. We also put it in in Wellington and Childress. Uh, and then was when one day Larry Pay came up to see me and says, uh, uh, "You know, uh, we'd sure like to get that that service there." And, don't you think you need a contract from us? And I said, well, you know, maybe, I didn't know very much then. I said, maybe I should have one, but I figured once you turn it on, you can never turn it off, you know. So we got the contract out, and then it is signed, and he says, would you sell that system? So I never had had anything that uh, somebody wanted bad as that, so I put a price on it, you know, and and suddenly I was out of business. I had a job, but uh, but I uh, I really thought well, I ought to build some more cable systems. And so uh, the uh, got a bunch of maps and started looking around on where to go. I learned about taxes suddenly, and uh, so uh, I. Moved from there to uh, Montana, it's Bozeman, Montana. Oh, I'm. I think I may have missed something. Uh, you're talking. Uh, you sold the Plainview system. No, I sold the Memphis system. The Memphis system. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Plainview wasn't. The no, name. I was working, still working for Anderson Clayton at Plainview. I see. So I was. We were working evenings and weekends, and running our cable system. So uh, when we sold the uh, the Memphis system to Larry Boggs, did I say Larry Pay a while ago? Yes, you mentioned Larry. Uh, it's Pay. Larry Larry Boggs, and uh, so uh, you remember that contract? We had the contract on one sheet of paper. Today it takes a hundred and fifty sheets, you know, but. Uh, so, anyway, I moved from, after we sold the Memphis system, I moved into Bozeman, Montana. And that's where I, let me get this off. Can you shut it? I did, I messed up. It's Larry Boggs that I sold the Memphis system to. And then we, we, uh, this was when, uh, about this time was when Daniels and Associates had just started their their business and had communicated with me. So I called Daniels and said, yes, I need another cable system, you know. And uh, sure enough, Larry Pay had had his accident, you remember, on the way home from a convention. Yes, I do. Now, that and, was a PEA, Larry Pay. Right. And was he, he not flying home from Washington, D.C.? I believe he was. And uh, in an airplane accident over West Virginia. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I just filled that in to make sure I was talking about the same person you are. Mm-hmm. 
So he had had uh, just bought the Bozeman, Montana system, and they really needed, it was in sort of ill state of repair and uh, didn't have many, uh, had three signals, but they were all the same one, all the same uh, network. And so we, uh, we bought that system from, from uh, Larry's estate and moved up there uh, uh, in, uh, I, moved, I moved up there in September of uh, 58. And tell me, go on what we're doing? Yeah. And of course, when we got there, they had put a microwave in that there have been three stations, but they had put an off air microwave receiver that, that went to Idaho Falls to Billings to Great Falls. And so the, all three stations were taking their feet off of the same off air service. So we built a microwave system from Salt Lake City uh, to uh, Billings. When you say we, Bob, uh, all right. This who are time, you excuse me, I got ahead of myself. This, uh, I met a fella in Montana, in Livingston, Montana, named Paul McAdam, and Paul had the same problem in his system in Livingston and in Lewistown. So, uh, uh, I stopped to meet him on the way in to Bozeman and. He wasn't very interested at that time. I went back up about a week later with my family and so forth, and he's coming home with me this time wanting to build a microwave. because So we got busy and built what was then the longest baseband microwave system in the country from near Salt Lake to Billings, Montana. Built it serving several cable systems along the way, and... and uh, broadcast uh, television and uh, it continued to grow until we finally served virtually all the cable systems in the state and all the broadcast stations in the state and that was western microwave western microwave correct? right mm -hmm. that was one of the early legitimate microwave common carriers wasn't mm -hmm. it? Uh, yeah. by legitimate i mean they they served customers that they didn't own right yeah. they served uh, broadcasters as well as cable systems, and and uh, they had a rule at the commission at that time that, or that developed at some time in there that you had to have 50% outside uh, customers, which we always managed to have, and the uh, system is still intact after all these years. It's certainly been rebuilt a few times. Was Paul McAdams a partner of yours in that system? In the microwave system, he bought in 50-50 on that. Uh, was he 50-50 on the whole system or just the area that part no. that served? On, on the microwave system, he was 50-50. And uh, the, uh, his cable systems and, and our cable system, we kept separate. Occasionally, because the microwave system would would lend itself to developing a new location, we'd go 50-50 on a franchise, you know, like uh, Butte, Helena. Yeah. Paul, uh, 
Paul is one of those very early pioneers who died quite early in the right. industry. Do you recall when that was? Um, I'm going to say that that it was somewhere about uh, uh, 67. Is that, is that wrong? That, no, that seems about right. Uh, I visited with Paul at his home in Livingston once many years ago, and I'm trying to recall whether you were present at that meeting. Do you have any recollection of, of seeing me at his home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul, Paul and I were, were working on the microwave and developing more cable systems in Montana, both sometimes for ourselves, sometimes uh, uh, for the microwave system, for others, uh, for about from 1958 until 1965. So I'm a little short. Paul... Paul lived a little, he lived till at about 68 or 9, okay. And Paul was in the motion picture theater business. He, he had been in the motion picture theater business uh, and the, the uh, radio broadcast business uh, prior to entering the cable. Uh, the reason I diverted to Paul a little bit, Bob, mm -hmm. is that there's no way he's going to be a part of this uh, oral history record if the, mm -hmm. those of us who knew him don't mention it. So I, right. just, I just wanted to identify him. But I did yeah. not realize that Paul was a full partner of yours in, in Western Microwave. He was, uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, yes, we could talk about Paul, and he was one of those uh, rare characters, and we could talk about Paul for the rest of the day, you know. And he really should. Too bad we can't have an oral history for him in there. Yes, it is a shame. Uh, I will uh, make another comment about Paul on the record because it was entertaining to many of us, but it wasn't particularly to Paul. But he was a good friend of Fred Stevenson, who right. was another early pioneer in the industry, as you know. And Fred, some way or other, got wind of the fact that uh, Paul couldn't tolerate being referred to as the sheep herder. Apparently, those were words of serious opprobrium in Montana. So Fred started to call uh, uh, Paul a sheep herder, and Paul just went through the ceiling every time he did it. And finally, some of us had to get on Fred's back and tell him to knock it off, that it had gotten beyond the point of being a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those fighting words in Montana, you yeah. know. But, uh, no, Paul was quite a character. And I mentioned Fred. I remember once uh, Paul would go down and fish with Fred down bass fishing in, in Arkansas, and one time he's going to come up and fish with with uh, Paul and me, and Fred calls me and says, now, when is when should I come up? And then he said, Paul just tells me come anytime you want to. And he said, now, I, I know you'll tell me the truth. Now, when did I come up? And I said, well, really anytime you want to. You know, come when the weather's good, it's more fun, but We'll go fishing. We'll catch fish when you're there. We'll just fish in different places, you know, depending on the season. But so 
Fred did come up, so he must, Paul must not have been too mad at him. He came up and fished for a couple of weeks. Well, they really were good friends. They were. It, it and both a, great guys. Yeah, both great guys, too. And for the record, again, Fred Stevenson died several years ago, too. Uh, they were two of the first of the very early group to pass away. Uh, Bob, uh, uh, you uh, moved to Montana to Bozeman to uh, uh, buy the Bozeman cable system from the estate of Larry Pay. Uh, what kind of shape did you find it in when you got there? Well, it, uh, as I said a while ago, we found uh, uh, it had three pictures. It was the old W strip amplifiers and built out surplus cable. So. It wasn't uh, anything to write home about, but the community was great, and still is. And we immediately put in new trunk lines and uh, and put in some what we thought then were broadband amplifiers. And uh, what were they? Which ones were they? Uh, the UBC 13, 12. I believe it's the first little broadband one Gerald made, trunk amp, and uh, but they got us by for a while, and uh, but we got the microwave in, brought five channels of microwave in from Salt Lake, so we from that time on we we just continued to keep upgrading the system, and every time we got a few dollars ahead, we spent it on on the plant, and uh, it's been extremely good to us for these 40-some uh, years. Is that still in the TCI system? Still in the TCI system. It was, I always consider it maybe as the founding uh, system of TCI. How large has the Bozeman system grown in those 40 years? Strat, I can't tell you. I should know. Well, when you were living there, uh, you know, a five-channel system in those days and with microwave had to be pretty good quality television mm -hmm. service in the community. Uh, uh, Let me look later and tell you. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's substantially better now. Well, I should think that it would be. Uh, was there any off-the-air service in Bozeman? There was um, one channel from Butte that was uh, owned by... Ed Craney. You probably remember Ed Craney. Yes, I'm going to ask you about Ed Craney. <laughs> and uh, Ed was one of our first and and most effective adversaries in the business. And uh, so he had a station up on the uh, on the mountain to the east side of Butte that uh, could get into Bozeman and do pretty well. That was all. The rest of them were, it's all mountainous country, so there'd be spasmodic places that they, you know, couldn't get service, but. Now, there was not a local station in Bozeman? No local station. There was a radio station. Two radio stations, then. Do you uh, recall who owned them? Uh, yes, I do. Dale Moore owned one. You remember Dale Moore? I remember the name, yes. And, uh. Uh, uh, mm, I, Let 
any suggestion there. Right. Was it Norm Penwell? Norm Penwell had had been in the station that uh, Dale had, that Dale Moore bought. And I think he had bought it from, from Norm and maybe an associate or two. And uh, so, uh, Smiley, that's been too many years. To, uh, yeah. I'll think of it later. Yeah, that's the way with me. It'll come back. Uh, I, I asked those questions about the radio station because my recollection is that people who were also got into cable were in them, and I, I right. wanted to sta establish that well, link. Norman Penwell, um, Archer Taylor, that you still yes. know, and several of those people had, had uh, built the Bozeman system originally before Larry Pay got it. Well, after, uh, after you got Bozeman running along, uh, what were your next franchising activities in uh, Montana and that region, uh, including Idaho and wherever you uh, franchised in those states? I believe uh, we went to Dillon and Butte, and part of the reason we did those was to get uh, uh, spots along the microwave system that we could keep... Uh, uh, maintenance people and and uh, and could tell you know where it was working and where it wasn't. Uh, we went uh, later on out in the western part of the state to uh, uh, Glendive, Williston, uh, some of those places. Uh, went to Deer Lodge. We. Uh, we pretty well tried to franchise anything that didn't already have a cable system in it at that time. Let me go back a little bit then. There are a couple of miscellaneous questions that uh, I, I would like to ask you. In uh, reading uh, some biographical information that was uh, uh, published uh, with respect to uh, your late wife, Betsy, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, that was uh, mentioned that uh, 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 a lot of decisions were made over the kitchen table. Uh, if it doesn't uh, bother you too much for the memories, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that for the record? Well, you know, the kitchen table reminds me then when we built the, the Memphis cable system, I mentioned earlier that we, we used a draft system instead of sending bills. Uh, they were prepared right on our kitchen table. It was the only office we had for two years was the kitchen. So people didn't, didn't uh, uh, come there very often, but uh, we, just, we didn't open an office until I left uh, Memphis. With the draft system, you didn't need one. Didn't really need one. Took the travel calls at home, and, and uh, then when we moved on to, uh, to Montana... Uh, the uh, Betsy spent a, a lot of time in the office. Uh, I was uh, traveling virtually every week, uh, probably four days a week, maybe more, some weeks. And uh, so uh, she kind of kept the, the things all in the right order, the ducks in a row. And uh, 
so she worked in the office uh, uh, spasmodically to full-time at times, but usually part-time, until we left Montana in 1965. She'd been a director, was founding director of the company, and, of course, uh, was a director until she passed away. When uh, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier on the tape that uh, uh, things were pretty much 50-50 uh, uh, between you and Betsy, Just, it would be fair to describe her then as a co-founder of TCI sure. with you. Is that, Certainly. Is that right? You bet. Uh, she had to listen to me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and she put her time on it, too. I uh, expect that you're a pretty honest man. I'll, I'll ask you this question see what kind of a response I get from you. Uh, was she ever able to change your mind on anything when you, uh, if you had a, an opposing point of view on something to, that you were trying to get settled? I, I hope she was. Uh, she was. I asked that question clumsily, but she was given credit in this little article I mm -hmm. read for, uh, I think the words were that uh, on the TCI board of directors, she was not a mimic of her husband. Mm -hmm. Is that... Very, uh, that's definitely right. Yeah. She, she made her own contributions. Mm -hmm. You bet. She was a good director. You've just heard part two of Cable Cowboys and American Entrepreneurs. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for The Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening.